some of the most memorable characters appear on screen, as it turns out, for a very short time. I'm thinking about Jesus and the Big Lebowski. When you were shooting those kind of scenes, do you... Did you have, or do you have any idea that that character in that movie would have the lasting appeal it does? No, I mean, you know, sometimes, like, that that was a character that I had done something like on stage, and they had seen me do it. So I kind of knew the idea of it because they had seen me do this play on stage. And obviously they're friends of mine, and I had done uh, a couple other movies with them. So they they told me it was his part, but it was, seemed so small. But then I realized people were talking a lot about him, and so then I came up with some ideas and they had enough time during the day to allow me to try some different things, ideas that I had because everything is very planned in Joel and Ethan's films. And I showed him a couple things and I, I didn't think they were going to put it all in or whatever. But I knew that, that with them, if they think it's, if something's interesting, to go all the way with it and they'll put it together in a really, you know, expert fashion. Uh, but no, you know, I didn't even get the big Lebowski when I first saw it. But I was very embarrassed when I first saw the whole thing. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I... Because, it, you know, it's like when you trust people, you will go further for them because you know whatever. And I also knew that it's a small thing, so you can go really... You, you People are talking about the guy. You, you can go really far out. Mm. For, now, if I was in the whole thing, I would have had to... Calibrated, you know. Different you didn't way. get the Big Lebowski when you saw it. No, I thought it was Jeff was really good, but I didn't get all the humor. <laughs> the second time, I, I got it better, yeah. and then the third time, I thought, "Wow, this is a really funny movie." Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the show where we go back and talk about movies that bombed or maybe the critics didn't like. Brad, this is no longer the past that's playing in the future, but it's it's the now that's playing in the now. Maybe a day late, but it but it's it's I, I, I don't know what I'm saying. Exactly. Go back to the now now. It's the now now. It's not the then. I'm surrounded by assholes. There you go. <laughs> How you been, man? I haven't talked to you for a while. I know it's been a long time. I, I hope podcasting is like riding a bike that I don't forget how to do it. Uh, I, w- I will be the first to admit I, I had to sign in a little early just to remember all the stuff that you're supposed to do to record these things. But yeah, episode 165, this was your pick. What did you pick this evening? I picked 1998's crime comedy film by the Coen brothers, The Big Lebowski. Yes. Great pick. Uh, we're going to talk about how it fits the, I guess, thesis of the show, because if you were to, you were to look at it critically or even the worldwide box office, you'd be like, guys, guys, come on. But we, we got a theory. We got a theory. Uh, but to talk about a movie like this, we had to bring in the big guns and, and I'm so excited to, to see his face because I've, I've just missed him. But, uh, Josh, how the heck are you doing, man? Hey, I'm back. It's been a while. I think the last time I was on was uh, Mystery Men, maybe? Yeah, which is right. kind of weird with the uh, passing of Paul Rubens, too, man. Yeah, it's crazy, man. It's uh, It hits different when the, the icons that you grew up watching start 
start getting ticked off one we're, by we're one. We're getting so. to that age, my friend. It's sad. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like that age um, at all. But yeah, I, you've, you've been super busy and uh, doing a lot of stuff, not just with the VHS Files podcast, but also your um, James Bond podcast, right? What movie are you up to now? We just recorded uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. It's not quite out yet, but it uh, will be up soon. So we're we're in the Roger Moore era. Oh, sweet. And, uh, we're having a blast so far. It's definitely a different beast compared to the Connery era. <laughs> yes, uh, that's one of my favorites. I can't wait till you get to Dalton. He was, to me, he's one of the most underrated James Bonds. But See, hey, that's, I'm excited to get there. I think, uh, I think where I'm least excited to get to is the Pierce Brosnan era, but we got a ways to go. There's, before we there's get there. one really solid Pierce Brosnan one. Yeah. And there, there's another good one that has Michelle Yeoh in it. I mean, Michelle Yeoh saves it, but <laughs> of course she does. Yeah. She saves everything she's in. I agree 100%. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's talk about film noir and the Coen brothers. Uh, this is going to be a really interesting show. So, Brad, we talk about movies that bomb theatrically or just didn't go over well with the critics. Let's uh, kick it over to you and let's talk about those two aspects of the release of this film. Yeah, so we're 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 going to kind of bend the rules a little bit here. Cheat. So, release March sixth. 1998 with a reported budget of 15 million dollars the box office total for the big lebowski domestically makes 17 million dollars internationally makes 28 and some change for a grand total of 46.1 million dollars so people out there are going to say well that sounds like a profit to me for context the big lebowski comes after fargo fargo was made for seven million dollars do you guys remember how much fargo made total uh, one trillion dollars it made 60 million dollars so oh. it made let's see eight times its budget yeah um so you can see this one is a little bit of a letdown i think there's a lot of revisionist revisionist history on the big lebowski as well um i and, don't think fargo got a lot of accolade too yes and it's, it was yeah. academy award winning yeah. um and then they switch lanes and, and do this film um and I don't think at the time we talk about comedies that are ahead of its time. The big Lebowski is probably a number one, like ahead of its time comedy. And mm -hmm. I, I just don't think we look back on it now. Geez, like 25. Oh, God damn it. 25 <laughs> years later <laughs> and say, no, it's, it's not a bomb. But at the time it was kind of looked down. Maybe bomb is a little bit of a, of a, of a harsh term, a letdown. Let's say that. In, so co in comparison not, to the other film before, down. yeah. In in comparison yeah. to the film that came before, yes, yes, yeah. hundred um, percent. Opening weekend, The Big Lebowski makes five point five three million dollars. That's good enough for sixth place. Ooh. Listen to some of these films that it gets beat by. The first film is Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Just a just a little bitty film. <laughs> in its twelfth week, um, and they actually in its twelfth week added. 70 theaters. Jesus. <laughs> Already showing in 3,100 theaters, but they added more. That extra 70. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Insane. James Cameron needed a little bit more money in his pocket. That's yep. right. Uh, U.S. Marshals, The Wedding Singer, Twilight, and Hush are the top five films of that week. Did, the, uh, did you guys see this theatrically when it came out? Uh, I did not. 
No, I I would have been seeing the wedding singer on that weekend and had no idea what the Big Lebowski was. Okay. Yeah, I I didn't come to this until home media either. So Yeah, I I rented this um pretty much the first weekend I could, I remember. Hmm. Cuz I remember a Blockbuster having multiple copies and and kind of making sure I, I was able to get one. I saw this 5 years ago for the first time. What? Wow. Wow. Oh my god. <laughs> I had n- Yeah. We'll get to that. I okay. thought I, we'll I thought that. I was going to be the newcomer to this one. <laughs> no, uh, it it we'll we'll talk about that when um, maybe we get to uh, why it wasn't as successful uh, in in comparison to Fargo and everything else. But you know, just just to show my cards a little early, when I saw the trailer and I was really excited for what the Coen Brothers would do after Fargo, this one just didn't resonate with me at all. And I, I just, I kept pushing it off, pushing it off. And it was one of those where you go buy it and you go, well, I'm just going to get to it. And so the the first time I saw it was on DVD. And by that time it had already been out on Blu-ray and stuff like that. I think the big Lebowski might be in the top five films that I've purchased the most. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I was a latecomer to the big Lebowski. Like when I saw the big Lebowski, I really wasn't even aware of the Coen brothers as directors or anything. Like when I first saw this movie, a friend of mine told me that he thought it was really funny and he really liked it. I watched it and it didn't like, like kind of like Troy, I watched it and it didn't really resonate with me at the time when I watched it the first time, but over the years and the subsequent watches, uh, my opinion of this movie's changed quite a bit. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for that. I cannot wait to to hear that. Okay, sorry, Brad. Keep going. No, it's fine. It's fine. I'm still kind of in shock. Five years. Wow. Um, critically, The Big Lebowski sits at an 80 percent with the critics and a 93 percent with the audience, and that's with over a quarter of a million reviews from the audience. It's pretty much universally liked by the audience. Do you know who does not like this film, Troy? Um, the Christians, I don't know. The Christians, of course, <laughs> they have a problem with the big. Lebowski. Well, yeah, it started another, a new religion. It's, yeah, it, no, it, exactly. it's competing with Scientology, <laughs> okay. Christianity, everything, right? I can't I, wait I have, to hear this. I've been to Lebowski Fest, by the way. I've been. Oh yeah. Safe. Twice. I, I, so when we talk about production development, some of the, some of the trivia of this, I was amazed, uh, how big of a deal this thing was on, on sort of the cult movie circuit. Yeah. I know you've had some experience with it. I I want to hear yours too, Josh. But but go ahead. Let's 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 hear about all the pagan worldviews. Yes. So for those not aware, MovieGuide.org is a Christian website that reviews films not for their quality but for their content, and they use a scale that is minus four to plus four. Minus four is uh, sucking the dude's dick for a thousand dollars. Hellfire and, plus and brimstone four yep. is going to heaven. Uh, where do we think the big Lebowski sits on their scale. The lowest it can go. You think so? I think so. I'm I'm going to say negative two. Wow. It is in the middle. It is a negative three. Oh, wow. okay. Wow. <clears throat> so they break it down. Language, heavy, violence, light. Don't know if I would say light on the violence. Sex, light, nudity, heavy. <clears throat> Cynical worldview with anti-biblical elements. 325 obscenities. Right. 16 profanity. Lots of crude sex talk. 
Man shaves, man shoves man's face in toilet. Man urinates on rug. Man threatens man with gun. Man beats car with tire iron. Man, <laughs> men fight men, and men threaten to kill men. Men fight men. Okay. <laughs> Frequent upper female nudity with one scene with full body female nudity and upper male nudity. Implied sex, alcohol, drugs, and revenge. Okay. Yeah, I see the negative three now. I would I was see wrong. the like they kind of gloss over the drugs, but there's so much weed smoking in this movie. Like, yeah. no pagan. You think they'd call that out? No pagan worldview. No. Oh no, no nihilist worldview either. Oh, okay. That's 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 surprising considering we've got a movie full of nihilists here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they're nihilists, Donnie. Um, okay, films you could have seen March of 1998. We have Everest which is a documentary that made $127 million. Seriously? I remember hearing about that, but okay. I don't think I ever saw it. I don't think I saw Hush, it. Hush, um, U.S. Marshals, Twilight, we've talked about, The Man in the Iron Mask. Yeah, Leo. Mr. Nice Guy, Primary Colors, Wild Things. Gosh, I should look up the, the uh, movie guide review for Wild Things. The Newtown <laughs> Boys, and that's about it. Yeah, I was I was in the theater seeing Mr. Nice Guy. So Jack Chan, were seeing someone wild things, Troy, don't lie. Yeah, I saw that too, but I saw Mr. Yeah. Nice Guy a few times. So how do you guys feel about uh, U.S. Marshals? It's kind of the pseudo sequel to the Fugitive. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's a good. It's it's a solid thriller. I mean, it's not it's not the Fugitive quality, but it. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones is great. Right, right. I, I remember Wesley Snipes is pretty good too. Yeah, I remember liking it quite a bit when I was younger. I haven't seen it in a few years, so it's got me kind of itching to want to watch it again now. That's a solid month of films. So I'd, I'd say it, yeah, uh, and for especially a random March in 1998. Yes, yeah. And course. Titanic is still killing it out there. So, yeah. uh, okay. That's some stiff competition. Well, let's talk about the people who made this, uh, both behind the camera and front of the camera. We're going to start with, uh, Ethan and Joel Cohen. So real quick for those who are uninitiated or unfamiliar, these two brothers, they write, direct and produce their films jointly. Although, since The Tragedy of Macbeth from 2021, which was directed by Joel without Ethan's involvement, the duo started directing solo pieces with the documentary uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Trouble in Mind from 2022, serving as Ethan's first directing effort without Joel's involvement. And I believe he has another one coming out this year called Drive Away Dolls. Until, oh, yeah. uh, Well, am I wrong in assuming, like, I feel like I've seen some of the other Coen brothers movies where they've just had Joel or Ethan listed as director. And- yep. We're going to get to that here real quick. Okay. So gotcha. yeah. Until lady killers, 2004, Joel had received sole credit for directing and Ethan for producing or shared editing credits under an alias Roderick and Reginald Janes. They have been nominated for 13 Academy awards together and individually for one award each both won best original screenplay for Fargo and Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay for No Country for Old Men. The duo also won the Palme d'Or for Barton Fink in the 1991 Cannes Film Festival. Up to 2003, now this will answer your, your question, Josh, Joel received sole credit for directing and Ethan for producing due to the Guild rules that disallowed multiple director credits to prevent dilution uh, okay. of the position's significance. The only exception to this rule is if the co-directors are an established duo. Since 2004, they have been able to share the director credit and the Coen brothers have become only the third duo 
to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Director. With four Academy Award nominations for No Country for Old Men, um, so this is Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Film Editing, uh, Roderick James was edited for that, the Coen brothers have tied the record for the most nominations by a single nominee counted as an established duo for the same film. Orson Welles started this trend with 1941's Citizen Kane. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So Brad already talked about this. Uh, the big Lebowski sits between two films, 1996 Fargo, which was a financial hit and a critical darling. Then in 98, we get the big Lebowski. And then in 2000, we get, Oh brother, where art thou? Mm. Okay. I mean, <laughs> those, those three films in and of themselves, and that's not their whole filmography, but generally, yeah, let's, let's, I have this question and I, I texted you guys even before we got together. Um, let's, let's talk about the Coen brothers filmography real quick. And Josh, I know VHS file, uh, VHS files podcast, they, they do a lot of rankings. That's, that's one of my favorite things you guys do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I asked you guys, let's, let's rank the Coen brothers films but let's just share our top three. So what's your number three, your number two, and number you, and number one? Um, and you can give a little explanation for this too. But Josh, I'm going to kick it over to you. I got a feeling we know what one of them is going to be. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what what is your number? Like what's your rankings going from three to one? You can just go through all of them. Well, I struggled a little bit. And I will I will go ahead and put a disclaimer out there. I have not seen all of the Coen Brothers movies. Okay. Um, uh, I I am missing. I have not seen Blood Simple. Ooh. I have not seen Barton Fink. Oh. I have not seen The Hudsucker Proxy <laughs> uh, or Intolerable Cruelty or The Lady Killers. Okay. Other than that, I've seen everything other than the newest one, which is The, the Ballad of Buster Skaggs. I haven't watched that one yet. Okay. Um, Out of us or Scruggs. Scruggs. Scruggs, yeah. sorry. Um, so I'm missing a few in there. Um, now, do I think any any of those would overtake the top three that I've got here? Probably not. But, you know, ask me in two years, maybe that have ch- will have changed. But, um, you know, we're talking about Fargo a bit. And Fargo is probably the first Coen Brothers movie I ever saw. Um, and again, not really knowing it as a Coen Brothers movie, just as a crazy movie about this weird town up up in North America. Um, and, you know, it's since been one of the ones I've watched the most, but um, it would have to come in on an honorable mention for me because uh, a few years ago they put out Inside Lewin Davis. And that movie really resonated with me. So my number three would be Inside Lewin Davis. Okay. Um, all right. That That to me is like a dark horse pick, but all right. I like that. Well, at the time when it came out, I was very much into music. I was very much into folk music. And, you know, it's just kind of a fly on the wall following around a folk musician in the early 60s and uh, just kind of the the shenanigans he gets into. And it just resonated with me. And it's it's one of those that kind of hits home. You know, music movies have always sort of connected with me. So um so in, inside Lewin Davis is is one of my top ones. So I would I would put in it at number three. Okay. Um, number two, I'd have to go with old, uh, No Country for Old Men. Um, right. Yeah. It's 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 one of those that the more you watch it, the more you get out of it. Even though it's not your typical Hollywood, you know, 
storyline. You know, it, it's got that crazy ending that everybody, you know, either likes or hates, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I love movies that challenge the viewer, and that one's definitely kind of a challenging movie. Uh, they've got a handful of challenging movies in their filmography. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So No Country for Old Men would be number, my number two. And number one, um, if you could see <laughs> see my video <laughs> screen right now, you would see that I have a collection of Big Lebowski figures and collectibles in front of me because Big Lebowski is by far my favorite Coen Brothers movie. How much uh, do you think now we'll, we'll, we'll try and share some, some pictures of your collection on, on social media, but you've got things ranging from artwork to uh, collectible figures, um, even die cast cars too. Right. Mm -hmm, so yeah. Um, in, in terms of number of pieces for your big Lebowski collection or even value, do you, do you know what the total is? Uh, I mean, I, you know, I have, I have a sideshow collectible of the dude, which I like quite a bit. It's a second edition. Um, uh, I think the first one was the one with, that came out with him with the robe and everything on. Uh, this one is more of the, I think when he goes to see Jackie Treehorn sort of look and, uh, this so formal that, attire, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with the, yeah. with the famous, uh, cardigan sweater yeah. that 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 he's famous for uh the jellies on his feet which uh we're, we're talking about all the things that make me love this movie but um that would probably be my most expensive piece i do have a pretty expensive piece of art that i got when i was in um savannah a few years ago uh just happened to come across a place that had a lot of cool art with pop culture and saw one of of the dude on the toilet uh you know obviously you're not a golfer the whole scene there uh, yeah um and I had to have it. So I picked that up. And then all of this other stuff that I've got is just stuff I've amassed over, you know, pop figures that I've gotten as they've come out. All of those are discontinued now and they're worth a little bit of money. Uh, all the action figures I have are discontinued stuff that came out years ago that you can only get off of eBay now for pretty high prices. Um, and I mean, hell, I've even got a Sioux City a sarsaparilla sitting over here. So <laughs> that is, uh, that is, that is, that's just in, in somebody's collection. That's the one piece that kind of, it ties it all together like the rug, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I even have a mouse pad right here. That's a, a, a replica of the rug, the rug. From the movie. So, yeah, I mean, this movie, again, the first time I saw it, it, it didn't really resonate with me, but over the years I've rewatched it and rewatched it and rewatched it. And this is not only my favorite Coen Brothers movie. This is my favorite comedy of all time. Oh I mean, my goodness! I, okay, it's it's that high on on my top movies list. Like it would not just be a top Coen Brothers movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Dang. Okay. Well, it doesn't surprise me it's in your top three, but but hearing how it's uh, kind of solidified the top like spot for comedies too was surprising. But that's really cool. Yeah. All right, Brad, what, what's All your right. ranking? How do you go? So my number three would be a film called the big Lebowski. Um, it also is my favorite comedy of all time of all um, time. Yes. All the comedies that are out there. This is number I one. I think me and Brad were like separated at birth or something. I think so, I should, yeah. You know, he's somewhere along the line. He got this love for Pearl jam that I didn't get, but everything yeah. else we kind of agree <laughs> on. Well, so if you think about it, I was 15 when this came out, getting ready to go to high school. We had a friend that we called Donnie. I mean, we were the annoying people that quoted this film all the time. You know, we went from Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fictions to Clerks to mm -hmm. The Big Lebowski. That was like our big four that 
our whole vocabulary was based on those four films. Um, yeah. So it's just been with me for goddamn 25 years. God, every time I say that, I just, yeah, really it makes you feel old, man. Yep. Uh, my number two would be no country for old men. I think no country for old men is a masterpiece. And, uh, it's not one that I go back to a lot, but, um, I love it. Ironically, it's my second favorite film of that year. I'm a more of a there will be blood person, but mm, I'm yeah. not going to deny that no country is not a masterpiece as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my number one is Fargo. And I think Fargo is a perfect film. Okay. And yeah, I, I think Fargo, I don't know. There's just something about it. The dark humor, uh, the, I, I, I don't know. It, to me, Fargo is, is perfect. And I, could watch it at any point in time. Um, it's a little bit different than no country. I don't think no country is like, uh, I think I, I don't know. It's not just one that I throw on, but Fargo, I would watch it in a second. Um, if anyone was like, Hey, I haven't seen Fargo. I was like, we're watching it right this second. <laughs> I think my I mean, favorite VHS I ever bought, it was this Fargo collector box and it came with a VHS mm-hmm. tape and a clear plastic thing, but it had a snow globe. Oh with yeah. The, uh, um, the wood chipper scene. <laughs> I mean, Francis McDermott. Yeah. Francis McDermott is so good in Fargo. I mean, yeah. Spacey yeah. is so good in Fargo. Like, everyone is so good. Yeah. I mean, uh, we did our top four couples in movies not too long ago. And one of my top four couples was uh, Marge and her husband yes. in Fargo. I mean, they are just the, the cutest freaking thing in the entire movie. Every time they're on screen together, it's just like a warm blanket, man. They're, they're adorable in that movie. It's amazing. So, uh, no surprise. My list is different than your guys. <laughs> okay, I feel like man. when the three of us get together, it, it, I'm, I'm going to be the, uh, the one that sort of sits outside of the circle there, but Troy, if a serious man is in your top three, we're going to have to have a discussion, no, but I think blood simple is in your top three. No, no. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I like where Josh went with inside, um, Lewin Davis from a music perspective, because my number three pick is sort of another take on um, their taste in music and uh, the the comedic element of what they bring to some of their films. So my number three is going to be Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm-hmm. I, I think um, in terms of comedies, that's one of the best ones that they've done. Um, I have a lot of fond memories of seeing that uh, with my father because uh, we, <laughs> we would typically just take off and go see like multiple films, um, you know, hop theater hop. So we right. spent a Saturday and we saw, uh, the Keanu Reeves, um, thriller. Was it the gift? Uh, he plays like a bad guy in there. I can't remember. It was like a psychic. Oh man. I mean, I th- there is a movie called the gift. It, there was that one where he played like a serial killer called the watcher or something no, like that. Th- this one I think was, uh, and I can't remember his Kate Blanchett or something of that nature. Oh, um, oh, oh, that's just, that's the Sam Raimi movie. I think. Yeah, I, I think so. But that was the first one that we, that we saw Kate Blanchett, Katie Holmes, the gift from 2000. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Sam Raimi. Katie yeah. Holmes get naked in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Is there that a joke the- in some movie about that? <laughs> So, that was the thing that I remember the most about that movie when I was that age, when it came out was like, Oh, we get to see a different side of Katie Holmes in this movie. <laughs> yeah. So we, we, her we, naked side, we go to see that. And then we follow that up with snatch, uh, the oh, wow. guy Richie. And then the last film we saw that day was, Oh brother, where art thou? 
And uh, we drove home in a snowstorm afterwards because we were driving from like Louisville, Kentucky to Jasper, Indiana. Um, wow. But that's a hell of a day of movies. Yeah. And they were all three fantastic. But to me, they just progressively got better. And then when you yeah, get to better, Oh yeah. Brother, Where Art Thou, it was like, wow, that, that just became yeah. one of my favorite films, not just for the experience of that um, sort of theater hopping, but it, it's one that to me is like comfort food. You put it back in. I think it, I think it's a great example of films trying to retell classic literature in yeah. sort of a fun, fresh way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the music in it. Uh, yeah. uh, they, they did that one, um, concert film that I think was filmed at the Ryman theater, um, coming down from the mountain or something of that nature, which has a lot of the music from the film. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the title is. So I'm, I'm was probably that the wrong. first time the Coens worked with the uh, Clooney in that movie. Um, I know th- cause they had intolerable cruelty before that. Um, yeah. actually intolerable cruelty is a couple of years after. Oh, you're yeah. right. No, that's I guess that is right. Yeah. Sorry. You're right. Yeah. Uh, Clooney is hilarious in that movie. I mean, uh, you talk about, you know, that's one thing about the Coen brothers and I hate to interrupt your list. There, oh, Troy, no, no. But Go ahead. Like with, with the Coen brothers, like they have some of the best dialogue and like lines from movies that are so quotable and, you know, Oh brother, we're out there. Art, art thou like Jenny and I all the time, my wife and I are always like, damn, we're in a tight spot. Like we, we we're always quoting stuff from Coen brothers movies. I, I've noticed that as, as the years go by. Um, and, and that's what we usually quote from Oh brother, where art thou is, is when he's damn, we're in a tight spot. He says it a few times in the movie. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. I think it's such a surprise. I, yeah. I remember watching that film and it's like, I, I know the story that it's based off of. Cause you know, obviously um, if, if was it Ulysses, Ulysses, mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, or the Odyssey. Yeah. The Odyssey. Yep. The Odyssey. So, but how they interpreted it and what they did with it, I, I, to me just kind of blew my mind. So yeah. number two is, uh, what I think probably is one of the best, if not the best American gangster films ever made. And, um, that's going to be 1990s Miller's crossing. Mm-hmm. So I love that film. I think it's beautiful. Uh, John Turturro's in that. Um, I think he's amazing. He's so sleazy. And um, there, that's a film that has so many of these memorable moments uh, from, a, from a cinematography standpoint. I think the story's kind of interesting. Has all this sort of double cross. And, and it, it almost feels like a samurai film in some aspects mm-hmm. where you have this main character kind of playing all these different sides. Uh, but it's, I, uh, Gabriel Burns, the lead in that, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I, like I said, he, he sort of has that, um, I, I don't know, Yojimbo, uh, kind of quality to it where it's you know, very Kurosawa for sure. It is. Yeah. I, and I don't, I, I'm not smart enough or I haven't gone back to read as much about it, but I've, I've always wondered if, uh, because with the Coen brothers, it seems like they, they find an interest or a theme or a genre film and they just go down that path, right? Yeah. And I've always yeah. wondered, was Miller's Crossing sort of a, a Kurosawa's take on like a, a 30s or 40s gangster film? So mm-hmm. I, I love that film, and it's one that I can just watch over and over again. I think the soundtrack's amazing on that, too. I've only seen that movie once. I, you should go back and revisit it. I, I think it's super powerful. And, and, and that's why, I mean, uh, Gabriel Byrne, you know, he's not a regular on the Coen Brothers roster, um, and I, and something about Gabriel Byrne, I, I wasn't really into him in that role. I, I remember watching Ooh. for the first time, but again, like 
I've only watched it once. And I typically I think if you revisit, you will change that opinion. Yeah. Typically yes. after I've rewatched something a couple of times, I'll, I'll see the things that I completely missed the first time. So. And that's typical with the, the Coen brothers. I think their films they yeah. age and they get better with, with they demand rewatch. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. I think they're, yeah. They have a density to them with the dialogue, with everything else. Um, we'll get into it with the big Lebowski, but yeah. Yeah. So my number one spot is actually on your guys's list. Uh, I, I think it is their masterpiece and it's no country for old men. Yeah. It, it was a film that the minute I saw it, it just was in just burned into my memory banks. And even when it came out, uh, on, you know, home media, I didn't watch it for a few years because I, I felt like I remembered every freaking scene of that film because I loved it so much. Yeah. And, and of all the Coen brothers films, and, and I don't, I don't know if this, this ever happens to you guys. Sometimes you run across that film that, you know, so well, just off of a few viewings that you kind of want to want to treasure those, those couple mm-hmm. times you've seen it. And so mm-hmm. you don't go back and rewatch it a bunch of times. So of, of all the Coen brothers, I probably have seen this the least amount of times, but it's my favorite one because it's, it's almost like a fine wine. Like you want to, you want to watch well, it you want to digest it and you, it's not like, Oh brother, where art thou? I can watch that probably, you know, a couple times in a year. No country for old men just feels like, Hey, that's the one that's the nice silverware and China you bring out every once in a while and you're, you're not using it on a constant basis. But I, I think that is probably one of the greatest American films ever made. I think with the no country for old men, it was a bit more of a departure from what we had seen from the Coens at that point in time. I mean, they had their serious films. I mean, I remember Miller's crossing, not being very funny. Um, you know, you, you, yeah. you, 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 but for the most part, you, when you saw a Coen Brothers movie up until that point, you were in for a few laughs along with some good drama and some some violence out of nowhere. And yeah, uh, but- you had this kind of variety of things with No Country for Old Men. It was it was a it was a hardcore drama and there was very little to laugh about in that movie. But it was also like, OK, they they stepped out of their comfort zone and nailed it with that one. Yeah, I, I think if you look at Miller's Crossing or something like The Man Who Wasn't There with Billy Bob Thornton. You right. can you can see what they could Strange do. Strange movie, man. Yeah, that movies. Oh, that's probably their weirdest freaking movie. I love yeah. it. I I love the film. Um, yeah. I I'm I would say I don't know how you guys feel. I don't think they have a a bad film in their filmography at all. I mean, we'll we'll talk about what that when you know where the, the Lady Killers might be the weak link for me. That's what everybody says. I haven't seen the Lady Killers, <laughs> and, and even then, I think it's I think it's pretty entertaining. Well, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it, to me, I think it's rare that you see directors start off with blood simple as 1984 and arguably their best film is in 2007. So that's 16 plus. So 23 years after their first film comes out, they put out their best film. That's not usually how directing works. Like you, you kind of, at some point in time, lose it, but then, you know, I mean, raising Arizona was a big hit. I mean, and, and that was still that's 1987. So, I mean, that's, like you, I, I don't know. They just seems like they got better and better. And oh yeah. More sophisticated. Um, well, and I, I love, they jump John. I mean, so yeah, they go blood simple, which is pure modern film noir mm-hmm. to raising Arizona, which is sort of absurdist comedy mm-hmm. um, to Miller's crossing and then go to Barton Fink, Barton Fink. Hudsucker yeah. proxy, Fargo, big Lebowski. Oh brother. Uh, then you get intolerable crew of, cruelty lady killers and then no country for old men 
So you look at the genres they've played in, the actors mm-hmm. and actresses they've worked with. Uh, I, that to me is is a very diverse filmography, and it feels like they're just out there hitting every genre, working, um, just working their craft to to end up create that masterpiece. Which and I think they've got one of the best Western remakes of all time. True Grit is like a, I, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So I I just they're like you're saying their filmography and the diversity of it is really spectacular even a film that's kind of throwaway burn after reading like i would watch that in a second it has so many laugh out loud moments in that film (laughs) right i i was very excited when that movie came out because at the time when that came out i was a big big lebowski fan and uh, that movie sort of hits sort of the same Mm -hmm. sort of bells as big lebowski it's just about stupid people put in a situation and how stupid the outcome of all the situations are like uh, and 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 that's that honestly seems to be a theme within the Cohen brothers yeah. stories. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, the only other couple of people I want to mention sort of behind the scenes, um, we've got cinematography by Roger Deakins, which we've, oh, we've talked about him master. before. The man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, go back to episode 129 when we talked about the Shawshank redemption and then editors for this uh, film, we get Roderick Janes, which I believe is Ethan Cohen on this mm-hmm. one. Um, and Trisha Cook, who is married to Ethan Cohen. So those are our two editors. Now, the, the Big Lebowski has an amazing cast. I just uh, cast. I just want to uh, concentrate on one actor, though, and, and get your guys' opinion on Jeff Bridges, who plays Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski. So just a refresher, uh, seven Academy Award nominations and one win. So here are the films that he's been nominated for. Uh, he got Best Supporting Actor nomination in 72 for The Last Picture Show and in 75 with Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, the Clint Eastwood film. He gets a Best Actor nomination in 85 for Starman. He gets another Best Supporting Actor nomination in 2001 for The Contender. In 2010, he got a Best Actor nomination that turned into a win for him on Crazy Heart. The next year, he gets nominated for True Grit, a Coen's film. And then 2017 gets a Best Supporting Actor in Hell or High Water nomination. Another so, good movie. Yeah. I love Hell or High Water yeah. so much. I'll, I'll kick, it, uh, kick it over to you, uh, Josh. I mean, where, where do you land on Jeff Bridges uh, as, a, as an actor? Well, uh, Jeff Bridges is not one. I mean, my my time with Jeff Bridges was spent in my youth with, like, Against All Odds, Jagged Edge, uh, The Vanishing. I remember uh, with with Kiefer Sutherland. It was like a it's a remake of a foreign film. Um, what about Tron? Um, I I to this day have not I've seen never the seen original Tron. Tron. Oh boy, okay. I have seen the the newer Tron that came out, but I have never watched the original Tron. Okay, fucking banger um, of a soundtrack, Tron Legacy. <laughs> Goddamn, sorry. But uh, yeah, I mean, those are the things that I I had seen him in, like Blown Away and Arlington Road and things like that, like just dramas and and things where he was either a love interest or the main the main hero of a movie um so or well i mean the vanishing he's he's a pretty crazy crazy villain but um so you know seeing jeff bridges in this was quite a departure from when i was used to seeing him and and you know i this was not the role that i thought jeff bridges was born to play but i absolutely think he was okay what about you brad would we're I mean, how does Jeff Bridges rank in terms of some of your favorite actors? He's up there pretty high for me. Starman and Tron were were films I saw a lot growing up. 
Um, Fabulous Baker Boys is another one. The Vanishing, like jo- uh, Josh said. Um, you know, I, I think that first Iron Man film and his his portrayal of, uh, what was it? Obadiah uh, Obadiah yeah. yeah. Tony Stark <laughs> built this in a cave. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think Jeff Bridges is a, is a, is pretty much like hall of fame actor for me. He's in there. Um, again, true grit. Like we said, you know, like he's got hit or misses, but even something like hell or high water. He's so good in that. Um, Mm -hmm. I love that movie. Um, the only thing I would say about Jeff Bridges after the big Lebowski is it seems like a lot of his characters are some variation of the dude a little bit. Kinda, <laughs> but then he, he breaks out a little bit. Um, I'm not a Re- not really. A Cause he did Arlington road after the big Lebowski and, <laughs> yeah, and, Muse and simpatico. I didn't, I didn't see the dude in any of those. I mean, I'm talking more modern Troy. Okay. Okay. I'm not a huge fan of like the country stuff, like the crazy heart stuff. Like I, that's not my, not my bag, but I'm not going to say he's bad in it. I, I really uh, like Crazy Heart. It's kind of right there in like the Lu- inside Lewin Davis territory. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I need to give that another try. Uh, but no, man, I, I think he's 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 up there for me for sure. Uh, I I agree hundred percent. I I really like him because no matter no matter where he goes with the character, and, and it may be a bad choice for the film, but I still feel like he's one of those actors that commits to it. Like he's never phoning it in. Yeah. And I mean, have you seen RIPD or The Giver or but, Seventh Son? Like, but even then, well, Seventh Son's he'll a good example. He'll cash a goddamn check, Troy. He will, but I still think, like, take Seventh Son. Um, he's doing, he, I don't know what he's doing in that film, but he's doing he was, something. He something. <laughs> um, and, and I'm sure from, from his mindset, he's saying, okay, this is the character for this film. It may be a stinker of a film, but I'm going to bring this to it RIPD, et cetera. So he always he always has a unique aspect to that character. I don't think he phones it in. He may star in some clunkers, but I think he's he's you could always say he's really good in it um, or at least yeah. interesting. But the the films that I gravitate to when his name pops up is The Last Picture Show, which is one of my all time favorites of his uh, Starman, which is kind of where I discovered Jeff Bridges. And uh, the the range he delivers in that film is amazing. And then the other film that I absolutely adore of his, and you mentioned it, Brad, was the Fabulous Baker Boys. I I love that film a hundred percent. But yeah, he's he's one that as soon as you see his name in a project, you're like, well, I got to watch that thing. Chef Bridges. I'm, I'm surprised you you didn't mention that Fabulous Baker Boys is kind of a, a musical. It is. Uh, I wasn't. Gonna, I wasn't going to give you a hard time over. I mean, it has that. Michelle Pfeiffer in it for goddamn sake. It does. Um, man, that that's a. Now I want to go back and revisit that one. I love that film. I, I remember ne- seeing it in the theater. And I loved it. I've never seen that one. I'll have to check it out. It's fantastic. It's uh, it. It's a little heartbreaking, but it's really good. It's really good. Uh, I mean, heartbreak feels good in a place like this. <laughs> it, it's fantastic. I think you'll like it. So. This uh, film has a stacked cast. We get John Goodman, Julian Moore, Steve Buscemi, David Huddleston, Philip Seymour Hoffman, a young mm-hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, Tara Reed. Which every time I see this film, I'm always shocked when I see. I her. believe this was the first role she was in. Right, uh, this was right before American Pie. I think was it. Okay, yeah, I, <laughs> I forgot to look that up. 
The American Pie was 1999, I believe. So it was so, just yeah. after this, yeah. Just after it? Okay. Uh, John Turturro and Sam Elliott are you just some of the forget that names. Tara Reid is an urban legend, Josh. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's the uh, the call, the, the radio girl. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay. So let's talk about production and development and some of the things that happened after this film was released. And um, Josh, since this is your number one film, jump in anytime if I'm getting anything wrong here, okay? <laughs> okay. So the dude is mostly inspired by Jeff Dowd, an American film producer and political activist the Coen brothers met while they were trying to find distribution for their first feature, Blood Simple. Dowd had been a member of the Seattle Seven, liked to drink right, uh, white Russians, and was known as the dude. The All right, dude- can, we, can we pause for just a second? Yeah. Can we get into this white Russian thing? Yeah. Alcohol and dairy? Like, uh, like... I don't know about that, man. Has anyone actually ever ordered a white Russian before? I think it really boils down to a person's taste because I'm not a big alcohol guy, but I do like sweet alcoholic beverages. So uh, a white Russian would probably be right up my alley. I've never had one. Uh, I'm just not really into drinking, but um, I do love that that's his drink of choice throughout the movie. I mean, it's just like Kahlua to me is like the white person alcohol of choice sorry josh but it just really is <laughs> what you say? sorry josh for um all right no i've i've had them they're okay i mean if i'm gonna drink something like that give me a you know a bailey's irish cream or something like that i mean all right talk about mudslide coming out of your you know what oh Jesus. boy okay that dairy and alcohol come on all right sorry i just sidetrack brad all right the dude was also partly based on a friend of the cohen brothers peter x-line now I remember the faculty at USC's School of Cinematic Arts, a Vietnam War veteran who repeatedly lived in a dump of an apartment and was proud of a little rug that tied the room together. Uh, X-Line knew Barry Sonnenfeld from New York University and Sonnenfeld. I love that you have butchered literally every last name. It's Sonnenfeld. Sonnenfeld, sorry. Yeah, I put an I in there. Uh, so it introduced X-Line to the Coen brothers while they were trying to raise money for Blood Simple. They all became friends and in 1989 told them all kinds of stories from his own life, including ones about his actor, writer friend, Lewis, one of the inspirations for Walter, Uh a fellow Vietnam vet who later became a private investigator and helped him track down and confront a high school kid who stole his car. So a lot of these stories in the film are coming from, you know, uh, these stories that they're hearing from. That's what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass, Larry. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. Get it right. Yeah. The film's (laughs) overall structure was influenced by the detective fiction of Raymond Chandler. Yep. Uh, The Coen brothers wrote The Big Lebowski around the same time as Barton Fink, actually. When the Coen brothers wanted to make it, John Goodman was filling episodes for Roseanne and Jeff Bridges was making a movie for Walter Hill called Wild Bill. The Coens decided to make Fargo in the meantime uh, until, you know, they got their their people freed up. That's when you know you have way too much talent. You're like, "Ah, we can't make this big Lebowski movie right now. So let's make Fargo, arguably one of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah. Whatever. Well, this gets interesting. So Polygram and Working Title Films, which had funded Fargo, backed the Big Lebowski with a budget of $50 million, which you talked about mm-hmm. already. And in casting the film, Joel remarked, quote, we tend to write both for people we know and have worked with and some parts without knowing who's going to play the role. In The Big Lebowski, we did write for John Goodman and Steve Buscemi, but we didn't know who was getting the Jeff Bridges role. The Coens originally considered... Now get this, 
Mel Gibson for the role of the dude, but he didn't take their pitch too seriously. Can you imagine Mel Gibson in this role? No, no. And one of my notes in taking uh, in taking notes for this movie and, and whatnot, like I this entire cast in this movie is superb. And I cannot think of another person that should be in any of these roles. Like I would not recast anyone in this movie. Like they all fit like a glove. But but in an alternate reality, wouldn't you like to see Mel Gibson play the I mean, dude? <laughs> No, I, I want Mel Gibson as my as Riggs. That's what I want okay. Mel Gibson as. <laughs> I want to see it as an experiment, but as long as this version of the Big Lebowski still exists. Yeah. Okay, that, that's fair. Hey, I got the Gibson name right, Brad. Good job. Thank you. Uh, so Troy, you're out of your element. <laughs> <laughs> uh, an annual festival. So this is after the film's release, right? So um, Brad kind of went through the numbers. It really does gain a... a a cult status. Obviously, Josh went out and bought everything for the Big Lebowski. <laughs> many um, years later, though. Many years later. So, an annual festival, Lebowski Fest, began in Louisville, Kentucky. That's Louis. how you say it. Louisville. Uh, in 2002, and it started with 150 fans showing up and has since expanded to several other cities. Various celebrities from the film have attended some of the events, including Jeff Bridges, mm-hmm. who attended the Los Angeles event. The British equivalent inspired by Lebowski Fest is known as the Dude Abides and is held in London. Brad, you've been to one of these, right? I have. I've been to two. Okay. So what's it like? It's bowling. It's trivia. It's like a big party. Trivia on bowling or the movie? On the movie. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's outdoor. There's band. Like it's turned into a big thing. There's Um, a, isn't there a documentary, like a short documentary about one of the Lebowski uh Fest? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I saw that. And it, like the people dress up in crazy ways. Yep. Like they try to do the most obscure thing they can pick out of the movie and dress up like it. Like uh like one guy dressed up as a guy face down in the muck. Like, you know, it's just people <laughs> people get really creative at these things. I would love to go to a Lebowski Fest. I have never been to one. You know, I don't know why it originated in Louisville, but what else did? you gonna do in Louisville? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> We, I, I used to, I used to live close to where to, you live. Yeah. So I know, I know you got four street. It's cool. But, um, so here's the others. There's been a ton of books and, and essays written about this film in terms of its political context, religious context, et cetera. But, but here's a sample of things that have come about from this. And, and to me, this was the most unusual one. So dudism, a religion devoted largely to spreading the philosophy and lifestyle of the film's main character was founded in 2005. Also, What's that church called, Troy? <laughs> it's it's known as the Church of the Latter-day Dude, <laughs> a name parody of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The organization has ordained over 220,000 Dudist priests all over the world via their website. Brad, Josh, Josh, you have to be like a Dudist priest, right? Did you get your certificate? I did not. God I damn it, not. Josh. You you need to. <laughs> you have all of that crap about the Big Lebowski and you haven't joined dudism. Hey, Jason's, a, not, Jason's not married, right? No. You should do his wedding as a dudist priest. Yeah, I'll do his third wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, third time's a charm, J- Jason. Yeah. Hey, never give up, dude. Yeah, that, that's a, that's awesome. You could you could actually get the certificate from the website. You know what? I may actually do this. And put this on my resume. 
so we're going to talk about this after Mr. we Sauer, we see you are an ordained Judas priest. Could you please tell us about that? The <laughs> <laughs> dude abides. There yeah. you go. Dude abides. Uh, Cohen brothers have stated they will never make a sequel to the big Lebowski. Nevertheless, John Turturro expressed interest in reprising his five minute role as Jesus Quintana. And uh-huh. in 2014, he announced that he had requested permission to use the character in August, 2016, um, he reprised his role in the Jesus Rolls, a spinoff of The Big Lebowski, based on the 1974 French film Going mm-hmm. Places. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that film after we talk about The Big Lebowski, um, and we'll I'll share a story about my experience with it. Ah. Uh, but any, any other like fun trivia, Josh or Brad, um, that you want to share about the production development or or kind of what spawned as a result of this film being out there for 25 years? I mean, this movie is an anomaly for me because typically when I do love a movie so much, I will delve into every aspect of it. But I honestly like I love the pop culture stuff revolving around Big Lebowski. I love the movie. I can quote it like crazy, but I haven't ever really gotten into, you know, any of the crazy trivia, what led to what in the production and everything. I know all the the general ideas of who these characters were based on, but um, my love for this movie is solely just an, it, it, it entertains the shit out of me. This, this movie, if I need a laugh, this movie will make me laugh. Okay. No, no, bo- no, no bones about it. So you haven't delved into the political essays and everything about this nah. film. Okay. What about no. you, Brad? Did you turn in this? Not, I mean, as a, like going to Lebowski fest and just loving this film, nothing outside of that. Okay. Well, I really want to get to sharing our thoughts on the film, but before we do so coming out of Fargo, does, I mean, yes. When, when you, when you actually look at the total grosses for this film, it was profitable, but it wasn't the hit that I think everybody was expecting from Fargo. Does it make sense why it failed? Is it too different from Fargo? from what everybody was expecting or was it just the timing of everything else out there specifically like Titanic Titanic was crushing everybody. Right. But um, yeah, I think Titanic did play a big role in this as well. And um, I don't know if you saw the, the preview and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a hard film to market. Um, and I mean, no, no, no offense to Jeff Bridges, but he's not the biggest name in the world. And that's the guy who's above your title. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, it, it's just, it was an uphill battle, but the fact that it's like such a hard swing away from Fargo, but in the context, like it's not really, they're both kind of these weird dark comedies. Yeah. And- I mean, this could be like a spiritual successor to Fargo and in, in, in a bunch of different ways. I mean, it's, it's about stupid people and stupid situations. Uh, and I think what might've gotten people off the bat with this one is the first time, maybe even the second or third time you watch the big Lebowski you're kind of trying to put some puzzle pieces together. It's not the most straightforward of a narrative. And, but the thing is, is like, once you actually do figure it out, it doesn't matter. Like there's no reason to have to follow any of what's going on in this movie. This movie is completely like just nonsense. Yeah. At at, at every turn. I, I think it's, if, if you're coming off of a huge hit, and it's this true crime comedy uh, with this slice of Americana and it gets all these accolades. And then you see a trailer pop up and it looks like a 
mystery comedy with a stoner bowling dude as your main protagonist. To me, I just avoid it because it's like, well, none of that looks interesting to me. And when I first saw it, it was like, I, I didn't really necessarily pick up on it as a homage to film noir. Yeah, right. I just saw the trailer and it was like, well, it looks like a stoner comedy and yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'll pass. I'll go back. I'll go back and watch Cheech and Chong or something of that nature. So it, it took me a while to come around to it, even though I knew it was going to be good because it's a Coen brothers film. It just wasn't one that I was like, Hey, I'm going to rush out and go see it kind of thing. And I don't, I don't also, know if that was like the American public's view of it as well. I also find it really ironic. I think Seinfeld ends in May of 1998. And of course that show is famously a show about nothing. Yeah. Right. The big Lebowski is kind of a movie about nothing. Yeah. Yeah. True. Well, let's, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we can dive into our thoughts on this. And I guess it becomes an exercise on who likes it the most. I I think we, (laughs) I think we're gonna have a winner out of this one, but uh, stay tuned. Time for refreshment, refreshment for your enjoyment. There's hot, fresh popcorn, tempting, delicious hot dogs. And so many kinds of ice cream. And of course, sparkling, delicious, ice-cold Coca-Cola for everybody at the refreshment counter now. Remember, your favorite snack will taste especially good with world-famous ice-cold Coca-Cola. Where did you go last night, Marlon? Oh, is this where I'm supposed to say, what is all this about? And he says, uh, shut up, I asked the question. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Elliot Gould is Philip Marlowe in Robert Altman's A Long Goodbye. It's a long goodbye, and it happens every day. He has two friends in the world, a cat and a murderer. He knows who the cat is. He's not so sure about the murderer. Too late you turn your head, you know you said... The Long Goodbye. Elliot Gould in The Long Goodbye from United Artists. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. I'm through this time and I mean it. We're back, Josh. We we got to kick it over to you. This is your your number one comedy of all time. I know I know it is yours too, Brad. But Josh is our guest, so he gets to to wear that trophy. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, on your five hundred and twentieth viewing of The Big Lebowski, how how did it go this time? I mean, I I laugh at the same spots that I laugh every time I watch it. It's it's one of those movies that if I just need to feel good and laugh. I can put this movie on and there's not many movies I can really do that with. Like I do get bored with watching the same thing over and over again. Um, but this movie, my wife can attest to you. Like this movie is always on in our house and it drives her insane, but it's <laughs> one of those that from the opening scene of the big Lebowski, when you hear Sam Elliott, Elliot's voiceover start and he says oh, like butter, 
It's like butter. It, well, yeah, I mean, you've I, got that. I have a that, question that for go- you. Who? Yeah. Who's a better narrator, Sam Elliott or Morgan Freeman? I, I would. I would actually take Sam Elliott. I, I like hearing that voice. Okay. Yeah. I mean, no disrespect to Morgan Freeman. I love me some Morgan Freeman too. But, uh, but just the 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 pure nonsensical stuff of the opening of this movie. Sometimes there's a man. Well. He's the man for the time and place. Like, again, it it, it perfectly sets up what you're in store for. Mm-hmm. It, 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 and the way this movie evolves and the dialogue throughout this movie, I mean, uh, you might you might could say that Pulp Fiction and Tarantino may have influenced some of this. Maybe not. I mean, I've never really seen the Coen brothers uh, take things from other filmmakers, in my opinion. Like, I, I feel like they've always kind of had their own voice. What? Really? <laughs> Josh, I mean, I'm that, stealing from the, the, like noir films all the Well, I mean, uh, you, you know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. not from, from not from the popular filmmakers of the time, like, not of their peers. Oh, you see a lot okay. of people, yeah. you know, taking from their peers a lot of movies that that come out and sort of look the same feel the same uh this does fit right in with the whole pulp fiction-esque era i guess but uh it's a different kind of comedy it's a different kind of crime drama it's a different feel altogether and uh but it just how uh, how much or how much viewing do you do of films pre-1960 i've gone back here lately and I mean, like you brought up citizen Kane earlier. Mm-hmm. I just watched citizen Kane for the first time this year. Okay. Um, and, uh, I I've been going back and watching some older ones. Uh, I mean, 1960s. I mean, that's, have you seen like the Maltese Falcon or anything like that? I have sleep. not. I mean, I've seen Casablanca. Um, you know, uh, I am going back and trying to, to get some, in, get some education on older films just watched being there for the first time that's from the 70s but um what about so like I, billy wilder comedies and stuff like that no i have like i have some like at hot and a couple other of his okay. that i I've, I've been sitting on for a long time um i do want to watch some of that stuff but with me it's all about timing like uh I'm, I'm i'm always wanting to watch criterion stuff but it's like getting my wife to sit down and watch them too is is a little difficult sometimes i i i just want to make a recommendation and I, I don't know if brad agrees with me as much as you like the big lebowski i do think you should dip your toes a little bit heavier into some of the the heavy hitters of film noir like yeah you know yeah. maltese falcon the big sleep spe- well mm-hmm. specifically the big sleep there's some shot for shots in this one Right. Um, and even go back and revisit a lot of Billy Wilder's uh, catalog as well. Mm-hmm. Um, or Preston Sturgis. That's another good. Actually, go visit Preston Sturgis before Billy Wilder, in my opinion. But okay. try try some of those because I think you'll you'll actually get a bigger appreciation for this film. But yeah, keep going, man. I, I just I that that question popped out in my head when you when you were kind of talking about this. Yeah. Um but it's just it's it's the kind of comedy that resonates with me it's it's dumb it's it's childish and for some reason that's the kind of comedy that makes me laugh and you know and it's become a it's kind of a regular thing with the coen brothers i had seen it in raising arizona uh dumb criminals doing a dumb heist or dumb uh, dumb crime and trying to get away with it uh, this one's a little bit different as, you know, it's just a normal guy thrown into a weird situation. Um, but the thing about this movie is the way it's written and w- the way the Coen brothers direct it. Like it just, the way the comedic beats hit, 
are some of the best I've ever seen. Um, you know, you've got, we, we've been talking about Jeff Bridges, you know, the, he's kind of a, he, he went all in on this role, man, from the moment he starts talking in this movie, it's a, it's a laugh fest. I mean, you get the break in the, at the beginning, they're shoving his head in the toilet. Where's the money Lebowski. And you just got Jeff Bridges and his, you know, pa- pacifist behavior of, uh, it's down there somewhere. Let me take another look. Like it's just, <laughs> it's it's fucking funny. And when he's looking at the bowling ball, and he's like, "What the fuck is this?" And he's like, obviously, you're not a golfer. Like <laughs> it is just some of the funniest sarcasm and humor, and uh, like this is a movie that has yet to be topped for me as far as laughs go. Like this movie makes me laugh more than any other movie. I think. So why do you think it has spawned this cult this this cult status where people in Louisville, Kentucky are like shutting down the city and celebrating? I don't know if it's that big, but um what 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 makes this thing endure for so long and, and create that following? Is is it the is it the script? Is it the story? Is it a combination of all things? But I, I always I'm always fascinated by this one of how big of a fan base there is and how dedicated that fan base is. Yeah, I mean, as far as the fan base goes, like I again, I have a lot of collectors, uh, collector stuff here. Like I, I kind of nerd out in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I haven't been to a Lebowski fest, but I would love to go to one. I just think it's one of those things that's fun to 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 sort of celebrate how again pacifistic and nihilistic this movie is in in a sense, and it's like you know the dude is just out to be the dude. Like he just wants to fucking go bowling and drink white Russians and have a good time. Uh, and I think a lot of people can sort of connect with that. Uh, but he's also got this gang of people around him. These characters that are insane. Walter is one of the most ridiculous characters ever written. And the way their dialogue works in this movie is genius. Like I, I, that's the biggest thing I have to commend the Coen brothers on. in this is, the way they write dialogue, how they will start sentences, start different conversations, and not even finish a conversation. They will leave you hanging on the littlest things in the dialogue in this movie. And like you want to know the rest of the story, but you're also just laughing at the fact that they went nowhere with what they were doing. Uh, is, I, I, I just yeah, I that, think that happens in real life, though, right? It, Exactly. Yeah, which is <laughs> which is well, crazy for a movie to come along and 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 be able to make that authentic like representation of of a dialogue between just three friends, right? But right. also the 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 dude is a good guy. At yeah. the end of the day, like he cares the most in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, like his landlord comes by and and says, "Yeah, hey, come see my one man show." He ends up going. Like he is a good person. He cares for Bunny even though most people don't. And I think he's easy to root for because he, at the end of the day, is a good person. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, Brad. Yes, sir. What we're, how did, how did this viewing go? I don't know if yeah, it's as so many like times as Josh, 25th but time, I, I don't know how many times I've seen this, this is probably yeah. actually made more than 25. Um, Same here. <laughs> so like this movie makes me nostalgic for dank c- cigarette smelling bowling alleys like they're just not there anymore <laughs> right not, we Louisville? took my kids bowling and it's like this neon like super slick thing and it's like man i miss going to a bowling alley and walking out and like you can't get cigarette smoke like out of your skin fast enough like it's just you're so gross 
You uh, miss, you miss walking into a bowling alley and hearing market zero. I'll shoot yeah. you in the head. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, but I I think the thing that sticks out to me the most and like this movie is is like hitting way above its average. There is a shot in this where it's right after it's when the cell phone is ringing in the bowling alley. Mm-hmm. There is a one shot that goes on for, I think it's like, like five minutes where they're, they one shot it from getting up there. They walk out of the bowling alley into the parking lot. And like, they're having that conversation there. It doesn't cut until it shows that the, the dude's car is missing. And there's no reason why that shot is in this movie, but of course it's Roger Deakins, but it just kind of shows like they could have made this into a screwball comedy and it'd been totally fine, but there's so many layers to this. Like there's the political commentary underneath this. It's like a parody of like neo-noir films. Like it's got so much stuff, but what works for me the most is the chemistry between the three characters. I mean, the three main characters. Yeah. And you have Bashimi who just out of nowhere is just hitting grand slams. Like <laughs> when he says phone's ringing, dude, that is the best delivery of a line I've ever heard in my entire life. It makes me laugh so much because it's like five minutes late. Like the phone has been ringing forever and he comes in and does it late. And that's to me is like this film. It's just like every choice they made to make it funny. They did. And it all works. I mean, uh, uh, people don't talk about Bashimi enough in this movie. Like, he has the the smallest role of the three of these characters. But anytime he's in a scene, he's fucking gold, dude. Like, Bushimi has the least amount of work to do and is doing the most with it. Like, he... He he just has to sit there and does, be meek and be be fragile, and he does it so well. I like, think he kind of has the hardest part in some cases because he's he's this silent character. Well, he's kind of the whipping boy of their group. He is, but right. he's, he's the peanut gallery. So to your point, Brad, he he makes these the, the In and Out Burger stuff like that, um, and Walter always like shut up, Donnie. <laughs> but you you. A lesser actor would just be in the background. Yeah. But Steve is constantly participating in the conversation without saying anything. And then when he does say something, it is comedic gold and disruptive. And I almost feel that would be a little bit harder to do because how do you add to the conversation but not take away from John Goodman or Jeff Bridges as they're delivering their lines but you're still participating and you still know he's there. Like to me, he's acting with his eyes, his facial expressions. Um, I mean, the key, he's always got that dumb look on his face. Yeah. Right. It's, it's so good. (laughs) I mean, to hammer home your point, like that entire scene where they're talking about linen and he's just going, I'm the walrus. (laughs) Yes. I'm the walrus. (laughs) (laughs) He's not even, he's not even talking about the same thing. The dude and Walter are talking about, but it's it's so funny to see him sitting there doing that. And then you've got just this breakout with Walter. <laughs> the world does not start and stop with you, you miserable piece of shit. They give him so much crap throughout this movie. And it's just it's it's so fucking funny, man. But I, I dare you like his death scene. Like it really gets me upset. Like I'm really sad that Donnie dies in this movie. There's no reason why I should care that Donnie dies in this movie. Cause right. like, but it really does. And then the moment where they embrace at the end, 
like it is really touching. And I'm like, this movie is doing so much that it doesn't need to do, but it's doing it. And it's also doing nothing at all. Like there's so many plots of this film that go nowhere. Um, don't get resolved. I mean, again, it's like a neo-noir parody, uh, but it really, really works. And, and like, you can't write a better screenplay. You can't write better dialogue than this. Like, yes, Pulp Fiction is my favorite film. I think it's perfectly written, but this is like right up there with it with some of this, the best timing of jokes and not trying to be funny, but being funny. Um, yeah, man, I, I like Josh said, this is my favorite comedy of all time. If I want to put on something to make me feel good, the big Lebowski is that choice for me. And I could go to anywhere in this film and pick up exactly where it is and know exactly what's going on. And it it's, it's a perfect comedy because there are still moments after I've seen it for 25 years yeah. that I'm like, Oh, I've never heard that line before. Cause it's like so dense and there's so much going on and there's so many sort of people talking in the background that it, it just really works for a film that gets better yeah. and better. So, I mean, you guys have brought up Pulp Fiction a couple of times in comparison. And one of the things that I always kind of attribute to Pulp Fiction are, are kind of three things. You, you've got the script, you've got the performances, and then you have the music choices that come from just very eclectic sources, right? Mm-hmm. That accentuate each scene. Do you think Big Lebowski r- rivals like Pulp Fiction in those three categories? Cause I, I am always amazed when I visit this thing, their music choices really fit the scene. Uh, and it really adds to the moment. And that's, that's one of the things I always thought, you know, Tarantino was really good at, especially in something like Pulp Fiction. Well, yeah. I mean, the, I'm not a big, huge Bob Dylan fan, but the man in me works in this film. Yeah. And there's even like when I was talking about stuff I had never picked up before, like when he's listening to the bowling tape, uh-huh. the other side of the bowling <laughs> tape says Bob on it. And it's that Bob Dylan song that plays on that, you know, when he's having the dream and then they cut back in and it's diegetically a part of the scene because he's listening to it. It's like that stuff. Just like, why are they doing this stuff? That's like, so a, Love this movie, but they're doing it, and it just well, elevates. He, he makes a comment about hating uh, the Eagles, but then I think <laughs> yeah. there is a yeah, Spanish version of Hotel too, California. The suck ass. <laughs> Shut up. They do not. <laughs> well, I, here's where I think the big difference between someone like Tarantino's music and the music they choose for a movie like this with the Coen Brothers. And, and I think Tarantino's music picks are a good soundtrack to the movie he's making, whereas the music moves this movie along in a sense. Watch what like, you say. Watch what uh-oh. You say uh, no, no, no. And, and that's, not, that's not meant to be a knock. Like, I think the way Tarantino uses music is is really, is genius. But I also think the way they use music in this is genius as well, but for different reasons. Because, you know, you don't have a moment like the Credence scene in this in Pulp Fiction. Like, when he's driving down the road, smacking the roof, listening to Credence, like that scene is made because he's listening to that song at that point in time. And that scene leads to my favorite car crash in movie history. <laughs> when he drops the roach in his lap, pours the beer on it and crashes into that dumpster. I, 
I laugh my ass off every time. And it's because of the way the car hits the dumpster, like it gets air and then falls back down. Like it is one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen. Okay. All I heard was yes, Quentin Tarantino can't a do a good soundtrack. Needle drop than girl. You'll be a woman soon. Name me a better needle drop. Um, I, well, we did talk about the last dragon and there's that yeah. vanity song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. Okay. Sorry. That's the urge overkill, but yeah, it's, it's a needle. Drop. The better yeah. needle drop is in the last dragon when it, you are the la- at the end there. Yeah. Then anything Quentin Tarantino ever did, but go ahead. No, I, I understand what you're saying, Brad. I'm just saying that like that scene and in, in the scene that I'm talking about, they hit for different reasons, but yes, I mean, you could, you could essentially say it's the same sort of thing, but you know, I, I find Tarantino's music choices to be more of a soundtrack. Whereas I think a lot of the music in this sort of plays into the scenes a lot, a lot more. Mm-hmm. That's ah, wow. That's, that's a controversial take. My friend, I like and the it. title came to me, Josh, the, the, the Preston Surges uh, movie I was trying to think of is called unfaithfully yours. It's oh, 19, like so good. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, there used to be a Preston Sturgis uh, DVD box set floating around pretty cheap. Yeah. I think you can find it. Yeah. You, you need to get that and watch all of those films. They're fantastic. I, I, I wanted to double back on something that Brad was talking about though, about how like there are scenes in this that, that don't even like the entire Larry Sellers scene in this movie doesn't even need to be in the movie, but the movie is so much better with it. Uh, when 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 they when they're when they're you know trying to get the kid to tell him where the where the money is, he goes out and starts beating the fucking Corvette all up. Like it, it serves nothing to where this movie needs to go. But if that if that scene wasn't in this movie, I don't think this movie would be as good. Like there's so many little nuances that they put in this movie that just set it over the top for me. Like when he's, when he's at the grocery store and he's writing a check for 67 cents, like just little things like that. The the fact that he's wearing jellies as shoes, like a grown ass man in his fifties wearing jellies, like all of that stuff is just hitting on levels for me. That that just, are you employed Mr. Lebowski? Let me, let me ask you about two (laughs) scenes. And I, I I think that's an interesting take uh, Josh, but this, this film has two dream sequences, more or less, right? Uh-huh. So what do you guys think about those sequences? And if you were to remove them, I mean, what what's the effect on the film? I think the dream sequences really are just to serve as to kind of give you a, an insight into what the dude's, what's going on in the dude's head. He really like, thinks about bowling all the time. Like he's just <laughs> thinking about bowling and the last couple of things that he, that, that happened in his life. Like, and they're they're comedic, and you've got. I love the whole reference to Saddam and the bowling shoes and all of that stuff. Like, it all serves the bigger the bigger theme of this movie. But yeah, I mean, there's ultimately no reason for either one of those dream sequences to be in this movie. But it gives you more insight into this character that I think make you just love who this guy is even more. Troy, if you saw Julianne Moore naked, you dream about her too. Maybe I, I just I always maybe when you, when, yes, you, you <laughs> when you come across these dream sequences, I they've they've always been uh, just sort of that code I haven't been able to crack. In that I I think I don't know if they're saying something about the dude or if 
it has some additional messaging about, you know, the politics of that time. Let um, me ask you something, Troy. Yeah. I mean, RIP Paul Rubens. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you feel about the dream sequences in Pee Wee's Big Adventure? I, I like them. I, they, but how do I say this? It feels uh, organic for that film, given what Tim Burton is doing in the entire film. Whereas in this film, you've got um, this film noir parody that's going on in the stoner comedy and everything else. And when these dream sequences occur, I'm not saying I don't like them. I, I find them very interesting because I think there's something more there than just, hey, here's a visual representation of what's going on with um, I mean, you don't like Peter Stormare and Flea in a leotard with big giant scissors. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super interesting, but to me, it's almost like, well, do these represent some kind of um, Freudian representation of what's going on in his life or something of that nature? No, you're, you're in the, okay. You're digging way too deep now, Troy. But, like, but I do. I, I mean, I, again, I'm a armchair critic here, but I feel like there's something going on there and there's something being said. I just can't necessarily crack it. I would be curious if anybody listening to this who was like, hey, I read this thesis or go here. And this is really what those dream sequences are trying to say from the Coen brothers standpoint on the story or or um, the dude or something of that nature. I mean, they create a religion out of this film. So I have to imagine that there are sequences like that, that somebody's pulling from and going, oh, this this is what it's saying about Buddhism or, or something of that nature. Sure, let's hear your thoughts. Uh, okay, so... The Coens make three type of films. Um, the the first category are masterpieces. The the second is great cinema, and probably the third category is really really good cinema. So I I unabashedly love their entire filmography. Um, the Big Lebowski is great cinema for me. It's it's not a masterpiece. Um, it it is an amazing amazing comedic version of The Big Sleep. And, and Josh, again, if you haven't seen that, it's classic film noir. You need to go back and watch it because there, there are some characters and there are actually some shots in here that the Lebowski's almost frame for frame kind of pull from the it. Co- and, the Coens. The Coens. Sorry, the Coens. Yeah. Um, and, and, it's, and it's really good. And if you love film noir in general, I think you would, you would really appreciate the Big Lebowski and love this. And I, I always kick myself for not seeing this in the theater. Um, the film's biggest strengths, I think we talked about it. It's the performances, specifically Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Steve Buscemi. The Jeff Bridges sequence that always stands out for me, where I'm like, okay, this is master class acting, is there's a sequence where he's in the back of the limo. He just lost the million dollars. Um, and he's trying to explain the latest information he's just discovered while trying to make sure that he doesn't get blamed for losing the million dollars and that monologue or sequence, that mini monologue, it's pure perfection. Not Listen, just man, uh, new, new shit has come to light. Yeah. And he just rambles. Um, and I, I love, I, I love the response from the big Lebowski. And there's a, what in God's name are you blathering? about? <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's perfect. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking how many takes did they have to, to go through to get the perfect version of this. And I wouldn't be surprised if they came back and said, well, we did it in one take because Jeff Bridges was so good. Um, because it it leads me to the other thing that I've always felt about those three characters. You get a sense that each one of them, 
developed like this entire backstory. Like they wrote a book or a novel about each of their characters and then went out and lived that for like six or seven months. And then we're like, okay, we're ready to film our scenes. (laughs) That that's how dedicated they are to those characters. That's how authentic they feel. Um, yeah, like I have no problem believing that Walter could go get a toe by three o'clock in the afternoon. Absolutely. With nail polish. I, I feel like he did. <laughs> and he was like, he sells that line with such uh, authenticity. I'm like, I, I think John Goodman actually did go get a toe at some point <laughs> because he, he read this in the script. He's like, well, how is he? You know, how easy is it? Well, I'm gonna go do it. Right. And of all of this stuff that I have here, like, I don't know if you guys noticed, I have. Wow. You have the toe. You have the toe. I have a toe. Nice. <laughs> Um, you, you guys have already mentioned the comedic lines, uh, the stuff that makes me laugh out loud right out of the gate. You get the, you're not much of a golfer. Are you, I I love that sarcastic humor that the dude has another line that gets me all the time is I think Julian Moore is showing him the, the porno tape. Um, (laughs) and she makes a statement like, well, you know, what's going to happen next. Right. And he's like, he uh, fixes the cable, he fixes the cable. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this, this movie is sprinkled with those uh, probably every five or ten minutes, and you're constantly laughing. Um, I mean, even when he's at Jackie Treehorn's and he's trying to figure out what's going on there, and he does the does the pencil scribble on the thing, and it's just a fucking it's, – it's a silhouette of a yeah. guy with a giant dick. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, every, every five or ten minutes, you're constantly caught off guard with these little comedic moments, and – um, even as many times I'm, I haven't watched it as many times you guys have, but every time I, I sit down and revisit this thing, I'm constantly caught off guard with that humor and I love it. I mean, it, it's really fresh. Uh, and, and we said this over and over again. Um, and Josh is why I really just want you to like, just dive headfirst into film noir. I mean, go, go watch all of this stuff. Uh, the Raymond Chandler, Humphrey Bogart, all that stuff, because this does an amazing job of, really creating this love letter to film noir because when you think about the best film noir, a lot of times it's set with the backdrop of world war two. Um, it ends in such a way where the protagonist goes through all of this stuff. And at the end of the the end of the day, the bad guys may win or it doesn't amount to anything. I mean, film noir has this feel to it that the Coen brothers masterfully borrow from heavily and write a love letter to but then managed to layer on this comedic script that is just fantastic. Uh, yeah. There's yeah. always, you know, red herrings and MacGuffins yeah. all over the place. And yeah, this has got that too. Now, see, That's the other thing about this movie that I think could turn people away from it is, is even though this movie is really, and it's boiled down to the core, it's about nothing, mm-hmm. but there is so much information that is passed through this movie that it could be, I could see where people could have a hard time trying to figure out what they're supposed to be following here because they put a hat on a hat on a hat on a hat and you're supposed to follow this. And then by the end, you're like, wait, so none of this meant anything like, Oh, I mean, it, there, it means there, something. I just want to go bowling. No, yeah, I, I mean, I, see that that's where I do disagree. I think it means something, but it, so that's that other layer that I think people latch onto is there is meaning in this film. There's meaning in those dream sequences. There's meaning in the end of it. Um, there's meaning in these lines where he says, you know, well, it's gutters and strikes, right? Right. So the plot in and of itself, you may kind of go, well, the, the bad guy got his million dollars, right? Um, the, the dude is still without a rug. 
uh, all of this stuff happens, or, or maybe he really doesn't go anything from a character per perspective. There's no character arc for him where he ends is exactly where he started. Right. It's a rug. Um, there's meaning in that. And I think the Coen brothers are doing a great job of saying, well, this is a typical film noir trope that could happen. Um, but at the same time, let's talk about life. Um, mm -hmm. and let's talk about the gutters and the strikes and how, Walter reacts to it in some fashion versus the dude. I think you've got two ends of the spectrum on some of these events. And I, this is where the political commentary comes in a lot of times because people would look at that and go, well, the Walter's the U.S. Like his reaction to things is exactly yeah. what the U.S. was doing at that time period with Iraq and everything else. And you can, mm -hmm. you could draw that 100%. But at the same time, it's, it's um, adversity too. Like you have somebody who's high strung and you got to draw a line, do all this other stuff. And you have another person that's like, man, just go with the flow. Um, and having those two characters pitted against each other when adversity happens, I think is really fascinating. And and that's where I think, again, the performances in the script um, are really firing on all cylinders. Yeah. I mean, the, the, there's the famous scene, the market zero scene where he's, you know, over the line and you know he's, yeah. he's not letting the guy mark his seven his seven on the on the on the bowling sheet no market eight dude or market eight dude and uh but then there's the scene after that where the dude and walter are in the car talking and he's like no he's fragile you're just a fucking asshole you know it's it's him being a pacifist walter being whatever walter is and them having to like you know, work off of one another to get through life in a sense, you know? Yeah. But <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it's fascinating because you could take a step back and go, what are the Cohen brothers trying to say about our country through Walter yeah. and, and just saying, Hey, look at Walter, you know, um, taking up the Jewish religion and why he does it. And uh -huh. then when, you know, when he decides it's an issue versus it's not an issue. Um, when does he des decide to force the rules? Um, this whole, well, here's what we're going to do because you said that um, she's probably not kidnapped, et cetera. And we come up with this whole thing and it messes it up. Right. Yeah. And then Walter's like, yeah, but you said this. And, and the dude's like, yeah, I thought this, I didn't have proof for it. And he's like, well, but you said that <laughs> somebody could go back and go, well, that, that was our geopolitical stance on <laughs> a lot of things at that standpoint. Her um, life was in our hands, Walter. <laughs> and, and if you think about it, you know, as, as a country, we probably still haven't healed from Vietnam and that, and that comes up quite a bit through Walter. Right. So there, there's that whole layer that I think is interesting. Now I'm going to rain on your parade for a second. The reason why it's not a masterpiece is I, I have a couple of problems with it. Um, and it's in the execution of the story. So here, here's my only qualms with the film um, for the entire film. Cause it's, it is a film noir homage. And I, I latch onto that first before anything. Um, so the film noir aspect in the comedy, I think is, is where it's strongest. And, and I, I don't think you have to peel any layers to get to that. Right. So you're learning facts about the mystery at the same time the dude is, and you're seeing everything through his perspective. There's two scenes, however, towards the back end where I don't know if the Cohen brothers were struggling a little bit, or if this was a case of an executive producer said, Hey, we had test screenings and people are a little confused. I love to hear Choi give notes to directors. Let's yeah. hear it. Let's so go. here's my note to the Cohen brothers, right? Um, Bunny's driving Academy award winning directors, by the way, but hey, yeah, let's go ahead. Hey, look, <laughs> I, I have a degree 
<laughs> I I won an award for musical madness in in college. There you go. There, there's my award. Okay. So, um, but out of your element, Troy. No, no. Same level. To, totally, okay. t- totally apples to apples. So, Bunny's driving her convertible, toe intact, listening to Elvis Presley. Drives by the dude. Dude doesn't know it, right? But the scene, all of a sudden, you you leave his perspective and you follow her for a minute. And it's to let the audience know she's not kidnapped. She's fine. Here's what we go, right? The second scene where the dude's not in it, but all of a sudden it's information giving to the audience that the dude doesn't know yet is you've got the nihilistic Germans sitting in a Waffle House or something and they're ordering pancakes. And then it cuts to the girl is missing a toe. Mm -hmm. Those two scenes um, actually get explained through dialogue or from what the dude experiences when he goes to the house and finds that bunny crashed her car, the, the big Lebowski comes back and says, Oh yeah, she's been off in Vegas or Philip Seymour Hoffman tells her what happens. And it's like, yeah, we know we just, we just saw her in the car. You told us what we saw. And then the nihilistic Germans, when they're trying to square off in the parking lot, they're like, well, yeah, we, we kind of faked this kidnapping and, and my girlfriend lost her toe to do this. Again, that feels like those two scenes didn't really need to be there because it gets revealed to the dude later on. Um, and they, I think at that point it's under so many spinning plates that it might, the audience, the general audience might need that kind of visual. Like, yeah, Yeah. it helps to have the visual there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, It, it may, I, it just stand in, in how good this film is for 98% of the time in making sure that you as the audience, and and this is a traditional film noir thing, you're following the detective, right? You're, you're following the private eye. You get the information when he gets the information. Those two scenes stand out as, uh, hey, there's a, to your point, a lot of spinning plates. We gotta explain this to the dumb people in the audience. Um, those are th- those two scenes I, I don't really care for. They don't kill the film. But I mean, Troy, you're talking about two scenes that last all of about 30 seconds for both of them. <laughs> again, that's why it falls into great cinema. Something like No Country for Old Men, which I'd call a masterpiece, doesn't have that issue. Every scene is perfect. Well, I, I will counter with saying we've been talking about this film for about 40 minutes. If we have yet to talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie, and yeah. he is a goddamn treasure. So he's, he's great. The other the other issue no, I no, have. Well, hold on. No, well, I got one more issue. <laughs> Is the narration. As much as I love Sam Elliott's voice, he is butter. You are not criticizing the narration. Um, Again, if I'm wearing film noir on my sleeve and I'm also wearing the comedic elements, and traditionally these film noirs, it's your protagonist that's doing the narration, right? Think Sunset Boulevard, any of that mm-hmm. stuff. Sam Elliott, as the stranger, is doing this narration, introducing the dude, you get an exchange with them in the middle and you get to the end of it. Does it highlight the dude um, in terms of uh, how unique he is as a character through Sam Elliott commenting on him? Sure. But I don't know what it adds to the film. It adds comedy. I, I don't laugh during the Sam Elliott stuff. Oh, fuck. I do, man. Yeah. That entire first opening when he's talking about, I've never seen London or I've never been to London. I've never been to France. I've never seen the queen and her damned undies, as the man says. Like that shit's fucking hilarious. Are we not, are we, are we not sure that Sam Elliott isn't a voice inside the dude's head? 
I don't know. Like that would be, see, that would be interesting if, if that is actually the case, cool. But if you were to tell me that was the intent of it, I'd be like, Oh, it's kind of poorly executed then. Yeah. But those, I mean, th- those are my uh, only minor, minor qualms. Like I said, if, yeah, I'm giving notes to, to these Academy Award winning directors and just saying you did so good with this whole film noir um, homage. But if you would have told them to get Sam Elliott out of this film, they would have killed you. Honestly, I, I think there's something missing from the Sam Elliott character in the narrations to tie it to everything outside of it just being a narration. I know this is a Coen Brothers thing, though, because they they will use this third narrator Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think they did it in blood simple if I remember correctly, uh, or, or the guy reading the book before the, my, I might, I might be misremembering, but I remember watching blood simple and there was an introduction, uh, and maybe that wasn't part of the original film and it's part of the home media. I could be totally wrong on this, but I know the Coen brothers have used this trope before. I just don't know if it works for me in this setting, but again, those are really minor qualms that I would have from this film. Like it's nitpicking at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman. (laughs) Yeah. He's pretty good. He's not bad. I mean, he is the red face that he has in this film is which he says, but Brent can't watch. It'll cost him a hundred dollars. That that laughs the laugh that he does. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I think Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the part just right. And like, that entire scene in the back of the limo where they're talking about what happened oh, to Bunny. Yeah. And he's like, this is our concern, dude. <laughs> like it, it's yeah. And whenever the dude is going through Lebowski's stuff, he's just laughing at all this, like the little, little Lebowski urban achievers. He's like, Oh, you never went to college. <laughs> it's just like Brad seems like he's in a world that he doesn't even understand. You know, like he's, he's, he is the most awkward hype man you could ever have. I mean, I would, I would love him to join a rap group and be a hype man. Cause I think he would be amazing. Um, <laughs> but him, him doing, uh, just all of the commentary in the back of that limo, like you said, Hey, this is our problem. This is a concern. I mean, yeah. it, it's comedic gold. He is fantastic in this, but I, Hey, it's, it's not quite a masterpiece for me. I love that you guys uh, put it in that category. I have no qualms about that. I think it's fantastic. I mean, I don't even know if I would say that this movie is a masterpiece. Like what exactly? I mean, <laughs> it goes back to, this. I mean, cause what is a masterpiece? You know, this is, but like yeah, this movie, this movie is just one of those movies for me. Everything just hits. Everything resonates. Like I wouldn't change a single thing about this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, to me, it's, it's one of those, you know, take those two scenes I talked about it. If you took them out, then it to me it's like wow this is almost like a perfect homage to to film like it and see so you're you're telling me to go da- go down this noir rabbit hole so i can see where this was coming from i think that probably helped me in loving this, this movie as much as i do is it may, it, i'm not i'm not i'm not commenting on you know or i'm not seeing all that noir stuff in it i'm purely seeing it for what the coen brothers are trying to do with it oh absolutely so this this is the thing you had made a comment earlier about the coen brothers um and i can't remember how you phrased it not borrowing from other people of its time i think the coen brothers are extremely well versed in uh film right and hollywood films i think that they are extremely real well versed in this genre um comedies from like billy wilder preston sturgis stuff like that 
I guess what I what I guess the way I should have phrased it is is much like Tarantino and the Coens, like they're well versed in film. They they grew up watching what they like and they're influenced by that and therefore it's come into their movies. What I meant to say or the way I meant to to put it is I don't feel like the Coen brothers are going, hey, Tarantino's big. Let's rip him off. Oh, which a I, yeah, lot of filmmakers did after Pulp Fiction. I agree. There's a lot of people that are trying to be the Coen brothers like that's that's what I meant by that statement. No. And, and what I love about Tarantino, what I love about the Coen brothers is you could watch a film like this and if you just do a little bit of research research and go, oh, this is what they're they're kind of pulling from. Like Miller's Crossing. It's a, right. it's a great introduction to gangster films, in my opinion, of the of the old Hollywood era. So um intolerable intolerable cruelty is a great introduction to something like a Preston Sturgis comedy, um, something of that nature. Like Oh Brother Aren't Thou either. So if you know where their inspiration is coming from, I think it's a great gateway drug to go down that. So right. if you look at the Big Lebowski, it's like, well, go watch The Big Sleep, um, mm-hmm. and and see and and start going down that rabbit hole of that genre. And that's what I always have appreciated about Quentin Tarantino, um, Coen Brothers. The, those artists are showing where they got their inspiration. Yeah, I, I don't think. I mean, they're that, that's another from reason it. I love coming on here and talking with you guys about movies. Is sometimes we may disagree or have different opinions about movies, but. You guys always give me something to think about or like a, a movie to watch to 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 kind of further my education in, in some of these films that I love. Like, I, I believe I was talking with you guys when we were talking about Tarantino at one point uh, about Lady Snowblood, and I had never seen that. And yeah. now I have gone back and watched Lady Snowblood, and it's absolutely apparent that Quentin Tarantino was drawing inspiration from that for, for Kill Bill. Well, um, hey, so, look, if you love Reservoir Dogs, go watch City on Fire, a Ringo Lamb film, um, right. be- because uh, Tarantino loves that film. And I yeah. think he did a, a great job of taking that movie and kind of ta- telling something similar, but from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, Coen Brothers are, are no different. You look at their filmography. Um, and, and like I said, I, I always break their films down into three categories. And I and I would say the the. The three I listed as my top three are masterpieces. I'll, probably 80% of their stuff falls into either masterpieces or great cinema. And then the other 20% is that, man, they're just really, really good films. So, uh, I hey, great conversation. We got a couple other things to talk about. So I'm going to start with you, Josh. We had <laughs> an, a, a lively discussion over The Big Lebowski, one of your favorite films of all times. So I think... I think this is a pretty obvious answer, but is it a bomb? Oh no, not a bomb at all. Awesome. Where, where are you not even me? not even in the slightest. Not even in the slightest. Okay. What about you, Brad? No, not at all. Not yeah. a bomb. I'm gonna say it's marginal. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they just get those two scenes out. No, I'm kidding. I, I agree with you guys. It's fantastic. I love revisiting it. I'm glad you guys um, made me watch it again. Uh, I went ahead and upgraded it to the 4K too. So. Uh, and it was like 10 bucks. If anybody's interested in this right now, I think it's still on Amazon for $10 on 4K. It looks great too, it man. It does. <laughs> it has a DTSX soundtrack on it too, I think. Um, that that thing really sounded. So we mentioned this at the beginning when we were talking about production development. There was an unofficial spinoff film called The Jesus Rolls from 2019. Mm-hmm. I cannot comment on this film. I know we were going to watch it. Here's my story. I ordered the Blu-ray from Amazon because it was on sale. And it was supposed to be here the day I got back from my little vacation. The DVD copy showed up. I'm like, oh. damn it, Amazon. 
I bought the Blu-ray. So I do my little return. They're like, no problem. We're going to ship you another copy. I'm like, cool. It'll be here the day we're supposed to record so I can squeeze it in before we record. Another DVD copy showed up. And me being the uh, home media snob that I am, knowing that there's a Blu-ray out there, I refuse to watch the DVD copy. So I had to return both to Amazon now, order the Blu-ray off uh, eBay, so I'll get it here in a couple of days. You needed all those Ps. You need 1080 of I those need P's. all of the Ps to watch this film. But you guys have seen this, right, now? I I was able to, to get it in yesterday. And, uh, yeah, I, I have... I've seen it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start with Brad this time because uh, I really, really want to see this film after hearing his initial reaction when I said, hey, have you seen this? Should we talk about it? And uh, he he lost his shit for a minute. But I hate, I hate this fucking movie, Troy. Really? Okay. Oh. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so Jesus is in this, was in The Big Lebowski for... Uh, four minutes five, five minutes, minutes maybe maybe, uh, yeah, maybe maybe three to five minutes and that's all we needed of the jesus yes and and so the thing about the jesus character was he was a pederast right so the his whole backstory did you want to like since we're making a film about this character we have to then retroactively go back and retcon why he was uh a sex offender because we all wanted to know that but if you're going to follow this character he has to be somewhat of a good guy. You're not going to follow, uh, you know, a pedo. Okay. And so they have to explain it. And it's this misunderstanding in a bathroom and blah, blah, blah. So that like kind of destroys the whole thing. And then of course, like there's 90 seconds of bowling in that, in the Jesus rolls. And wait, it's there's 90 seconds. That's the film. Poster. Oh, there's no bowling in it. At all. There, there's okay. no, like, I don't even think, well, you may see somebody bowl a strike, but like it's, there's minimal. Well, that yeah. poster is super misleading then. Yeah, it is. And, and like every line that he said in the big Lebowski, guess what he says is in the Jesus role. And I love John Turturro, but he wrote and directed it and it is trash. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I watched it. I laughed a couple of times, but it's a, it's definitely a movie that I could have gone the rest of my life without seeing. I mean, it's got its moments. I, I saw more of uh, Audrey Tato than I thought I ever would in that movie. Um, and and I, I love her. I mean, shit, Amelie is one of my favorite romantic comedies of all time. Uh, I mean, you've got appearances from Susan Sarandon in there, a couple other you know big names. The cast is ridiculous. Pete, Pete Davidson. Davidson, John Hamm, Christopher Walken. And all um, these, Tim all of these Nelson. big names, you know, they have, I would call them just cameos. cameos. I mean, they're, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, I would say the mysteriousness of the Jesus and the big Lebowski was more interesting than seeing a, a full movie about him. Okay. I mean, definitely. I mean, since you've gone through all the trouble, Troy, I mean, you might as well watch the movie, but I hey, mean, guess I, what? It's only 85 minutes. So you'll yeah, be short. My, my general th thought here is anytime Brad like loses it and absolutely, I have to see it. I have to see it. <laughs> Um, I mean, I don't, I've definitely seen worse movies, but it's, it's, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're coming off of a movie, you're definitely taking a character from a movie like this, who is debatably like a, a beloved character from the big Lebowski. Like, even though he's only in it for a short period, a lot of people love that short period he's in this movie, but yeah, a, a full movie about him was not, not very interesting. So would you consider his character in the big Lebowski scene stealing then? I mean, when he has that 
when he has that freak out, uh, you know, what's this day of rest shit? Like yeah. that whole performance from Totoro is great. Um, I, I think he does steal both the scenes that he's in in the movie. I think I think he's great, but I mean they're also counteracted with with John Goodman's reactions. Yeah, you kind of need them. all of them kind of going back yeah. and forth. I mean, when when Jesus is is shit talking the first time you see him and you just see John Goodman staring at him with his blank face. I mean, all of that makes that scene what it is. Uh, same thing with the the one later. I mean, it just. He's kind of a punchline, but he's still those two again, those two points in the movie. I wouldn't change. Yeah, I don't. I was worried when I first saw this uh, coming out. I I never really wanted to watch it uh, until the idea came up of, hey, we're going to talk about this. I go back and visit it. But I, I wonder if this is one of those things where of those five or six minutes, there's some stuff on the cutting room floor. And John really liked this, you know, the time that he lived in that character, what he created for that character. He's yeah. like, man, I want to do something more with this thing. Uh, and and that's what we ended up getting. Like, it's a bit of a vanity project. I mean, they're really, uh, even the little bit of uh, quote unquote charm there is of the Jesus and the Big Lebowski. I don't feel like any of that comes through in the Jesus roles. Like he's, he's not really likable in the movie at all. Okay. So, so definitely would not recommend seeking this out. Not, right? not a recommend. I mean, if you're. If your curiosity is out there, like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Brad, I mean, you can't say that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I picked it up for like five bucks off of uh, hamiltonbook.com. So I was like, well, fuck, I mean, I might as well watch it. And since we're talking about the Big Lebowski, uh, but I, I don't see myself revisiting it anytime soon. Yeah. Well, my Blu-ray is going to be here soon. Stupid. Or is it? <laughs> or it better be. It better be. Two DVD copies. Come on, Amazon. Get your shit together. Uh, yeah well we have some listener feedback um we got some really good listener feedback can we jump into this guys okay here we go so first one and we we're going back a few we've had a lot of listener feedback obviously the shows that we did for jim cotta and underwater um we recorded before i left and and brad did a great job of keeping the fort down getting everything released so some of the stuff good we're job, gonna, my back hurts now Ugh. it does he, he carried the whole <laughs> carry thing. this podcast uh, so this is from our great friend, Zoe, who has the Backlook Cinema podcast. So he wrote in, recently I listened to your Jim Cotta episode. I'd never seen it. So correct that. But in the run-up to talking about it, you went over some other bonkers kung fu movies. Of all the ones you mentioned, I'd only heard of Kung Pao Enter the Fist. And I was surprised that you hadn't mentioned the only other off-the-wall films that I was more familiar with. I wonder if you've heard of them. All right, so get ready for this. Kung Fu Hustle, which I may or may not have seen, and Shaolin Soccer, which I definitely did see and is one of the craziest blend of martial arts, anime, and sports that I've ever seen. Just out of curiosity, had you seen these? If so, what did you and Brad think of those? Brad, before you answer, Josh, have have you seen Kung Fu Hustle or Shaolin Soccer? <laughs> I'm afraid to answer this question. Uh, I have started Kung Fu Hustle twice and not managed to finish it. Oh, geez. Oh, ooh, ow. Now, the first time I tried to watch it, um, it was a dub. It was a dub version. Uh-huh. And I I was really thrown off by the way the dub was going. Like, it didn't match the subtitles and stuff. So that was the reason I, I, I got out of it the second time or the first time. Uh, second go around, I, I don't know. I don't know what it was. It just wasn't grabbing me and I ended up not finishing it. But uh I have not seen Shaolin Soccer. Okay. 
Toy, I love Stephen Chow. That's the name right there, <laughs> Stephen Chow. So, Zoe, the reason why we didn't list those is, uh, and, and I'll speak for me, I, I think Brad feels the same way. Stephen Chow films are an entirely different category. When, when you're talking about off-the-wall kung fu films, I think the ones we tried to mention were ones that uh, really didn't have help me out here, Brad, it like quality filmmaking maybe yeah. behind it is. Yep. Okay. S- Steven Chow. So, and, and Josh this is for you too. Mm-hmm. You need to go and investigate Steven Chow's filmography. And there's, there's two categories you need to look at. You need to look at Steven Chow as director um, and Steven Chow as actor. And you are going to find some gems in there. So, Brad, I'm going to start with you. If if you were doing some recommendations from the directing category, what would you what would you recommend to Zoe and Josh? Uh, from Beijing with Love. Oh, yeah, probably. so good. He co-directed that one. Yep. Yeah. Uh, did he direct uh, God of Cookery? God of Cookery is a classic. Yes. It's so. If you want to talk about a an amazing blend of kung fu with something else, it's kung fu and cooking shows. It's it's. It's has to be seen to be believed. Uh, I guess I can't mention like King of Comedy and then the new King of Comedy as well. Well, he directed the new King of Comedy. Okay, so the new King. Yeah. Yep. Uh, oh no, he did both of them. Yeah, yeah no, I he thought, did both, and they're right. they're yep. both really good. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, and oh, uh, Forbidden City Cop. <laughs> that one's fun. Yep. Um, I agree with all those two newer ones that you definitely need to check to check out. Um, one makes me laugh just hysterically. The mermaid from 2016 oh, yeah. is so good. Um, and journey to the West conquering the demons, which is, uh, an, another take on the monkey King. I think that came out in 2013. He directed it. It's fantastic. It, it's visually amazing. Um, Kung Fu hustle, Shaolin soccer, all those Stephen Chow is one of the best Hong Kong directors out there in terms of comedy and then also I would say visual um, just visuals in general. Yeah. So if you look at something like Kung Fu Hustle, it is the Looney Tunes of Kung Fu movies. Um, <laughs> yeah. they, they even yes. have like a little Roadrunner yeah. sequence to it. Uh, and Shaolin Very Soccer. underrated Stephen Chow. It, it is. Um, now, it, as an actor, oh boy, you're, you're in for a treat. I'm, I'm going to throw out a couple of recommendations. If, if you are familiar with 88 films, which is UK distributor and you have an all region player, I think they just released the fight back to school trilogy, which mm-hmm. Stephen Chow has. So think 21 jump street, um, kind of, uh, cop goes into a high school. It, it, they're awesome. But my favorite Stephen Chow films, uh, outside of the ones we talked about where he's acting, not directing King of beggars is amazing. Um, the Royal Tramp series. So there's Royal Tramp and Royal Tramp Two. Two, yeah. Lawyer, lawyer is absolutely hysterical. Um, and then probably my favorites because it is, I, I describe it as Back to the Future meets Wuxia meets The Monkey King. So you've got a Chinese Odyssey Part One, Pandora's Box, and a Chinese Odyssey Part Two, Cinderella. Those are two amazing films. They're so much fun. But Zoe, you have to go down the rabbit hole of Stephen Chow. You too, Josh. Finish Kung Fu Hustle. Go do something like Shaolin Soccer. Definitely check out Gotta Cookery. It was on Netflix for the longest time. It may still be there. 
Yeah, I think it might be. King of Beggars, Royal Tramp, I think still is. But Stephen Chow is somebody you have to go and explore. It's fantastic. The Mad Monk. I also like the Mad Monk as well. Yeah, I didn't know if there were any others that you want to talk. He did a couple no, of uh, action films in the beginning too. Yeah. Um, yeah, you you have to you have to go and and watch Stephen Chow films. You have to. <laughs> uh, we got something from Ben. He says, uh, I wanted to suggest the 2013 film by Danny Boyle, Trance. It's an odd film to say the least, but was released after Boyle's Slumdog Millionaire in 127 hours. I think it would be a great discussion. The podcast, Boy, <laughs> the podcast just seems to get better and better. And I have to admit, I laughed really hard during the underwater episode. More Sammy and Jose, please. Cool. The uh, only thing I remember from Trance is seeing... All of Rosario Dawson. Rosario Dawson, yes. There's a shaving scene in that movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. We we got to add it because I've never seen it. I own it. I haven't watched it yet. Okay. I don't I don't I don't remember liking it very much, but it's it'd be a good discussion. All right. A rewatch a rewatch could be in order. Okay. This uh feedback, Brad, struck us as odd. Uh, I, I mean, it was an amazing surprise uh waiting for us in the email box a few days ago, but we talked about a film, oh, geez, how many episodes ago was it? The Haunting of Julia, also known as yeah, Full like Circle. five or six. Yeah. So out of nowhere, we get this email, and it's from Keith Macy. So Keith Macy is actually in the film Full Circle in The Haunting of Julia. And I think- William H. Macy's son, to be exact, right? No. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so, but- um, this was awesome because he sent us an, a very long email, and I'm not, I'm not going to read all of it, just detailing his experiences working on set, working with Mia Farrow, et cetera. Um, we've reached back out to him. We're, we're going to try and get him on the show because I, rather than just read his entire email, I would love to get him to tell the story. But I think somebody, um, one of our listeners or something, might have been Peter, actually. Uh, I have to go back and look at the email. But somebody had told him hey, there's this podcast and they were talking about your film and he listened to the, to the show and loved it. But I just want to read a little bit of this email that Keith had sent in. It says, hi, Troy and Brad. Back in 1976, I worked with Mia Farrow in the playground sequence in the film Full Circle, the UK title, as a professional he's, he's child actor. He's credited as Boy, Boy in Park. Boy in Park. uncredited. Yep. Um, and so he was a professional child actor from the famous Barbara Speak Stage School. Together with a few of my fellow pupils, originally I had a speaking part, as did four of the girls, but they were cut out on the final edit. But at least we were still seen in the film. I have adored this production for 47 years, as working with Mia Farrow on this was amazing. She was so nice and so exceptionally kind to me personally on set, so much so that I still love her to this day. Now, Keith has actually been in a few, well, it's been a lot. You can go to IMDb and see his filmography. Um, there's a couple other films that he talked about um, within the email that we may actually review, but um, I'll share this in its entirety in some fashion, but I'm hoping that Keith responds and we can get him on the show and and do an episode and have him talk about it. But man, that, that is an amazing uh, email, amazing piece of feedback. I, I never would have expected somebody working on the film to, to come back and um, give us kudos for for discussing it. And if you haven't seen Full Circle, The Haunting of Julia, check it out. It's awesome. Yep. Uh, Underwater and Jim Cotta social post responses. Um, everybody seemed to have an infinite amount of fun with uh, <laughs> those episodes. Yes. So good job, Troy. Yeah, thanks. 
I, I do want to call out something from Matt. He said, uh, got to call this one. I love Mad Max Fury Road. The black and chrome edition is amazing, by the way. I agree. Okay. And Mr. Korean Cool is correct while you are also correct. John mentioned Toe Cutter from the first Mad Max plays the main villain, which is correct if you consider Immortan Joe as the main villain. The prime imperiator was played by John Norton, who is Immortan Joe's second in command that leads the war boys into battle on the Fury Road. So there you go. Everybody's right, I guess, in those comments. Yep. Um, that's awesome. Uh, and, and thank you, everybody, for kind of jumping on the social post, sharing your thoughts on the films that we talk about. Uh, Brad, if anybody wants to make recommendations, or maybe you start in The Big Lebowski and you want to uh, <laughs> share your stories with us, how yeah, do they get a hold Jeff of us? Bridges. Uh, yeah, that's notabompod at gmail.com. Or you can head to notabompodcast.com and hit the Contact Us button. And we are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, threads. I don't know if we've ever posted on threads. So yeah, there, there is a good. reason for you to start writing to us right now over the next 60 days. We should talk oh, yes. about this, right, Brad? Yes. So right now we have nothing in October and Troy and I are going to leave that up for all recommendations to our listeners. So they have to meet the criteria, Troy. They have to be a horror film. Yep. They have to either financially bombed, critically bombed, or both. And if they do not meet the criteria, they will not be included in uh, our drawing because we're going to get so many that we're going to have to draw what movie we're going to do. But yes, so we need you all to do our, our work for us and, and help us pick the films we're going to do for October. You know what? We should make it interesting of the movies we pick for our spooktober season. If we pick your film and, and folks, if it, if it bombed theatrically um, in terms of like the amount of money it made and the critics hate it, I mean, at the double whammy, that's going to go to the top of the list. We love those. But uh, how about this, Brad? If, if we pick your film, we're also going to send you something to, okay. for the Halloween season, like a, a yes. treat, right? Okay. Treat. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll work out the details. We don't know what it's that treat's going to be with green of toenail polish. Yeah. Josh is donating some big Lebowski. <laughs> you want a toe, dude? I can get you a toe. <laughs> I can get you a toe by three o'clock. Yeah, I need it by three. <laughs> yeah. So send that stuff in, you know, go, go to the website, uh, send us an email, reach out to us. Uh, we would, you know, send us a, a message on Instagram, Facebook. We definitely want to make October sort of a listener choice month. So any of the spooky films that bombed that you want to uh, hear us talk about, send them our way. We're going to pick four and then we'll send you something for that as well. So that that's going to be fun. Um, you called an audible though, Brad, I, during my vacation, I read a 400 page book on the movie that we were supposed to talk about. And now you're like, no, we're not doing that film. We're doing something I, else. I, I asked, I know. And it was a good idea. So I said, yeah, what are we doing next week? We're going to do uh 1977's William Freakin directed film sorcerer since yeah. he just passed. Yeah. Oh, I just rewatched that not too long ago. So good, dude. Yeah, it's it was on our list, um, but with that news, we decided to kind of switch things up, and so we'll we'll talk about the film that we were going to talk about later. And I'll just have you seen the original Wages of Fear? Come on, Josh. Josh, yeah, we actually talked about Wages of Fear on um, Movie Matchup: The Pretension when that was our first yeah. podcast, right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, love that film. I mean, I, but I definitely since we're gonna. Since we're going to um, watch Sorcerer, I'll probably go back and watch the original, too. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. They're very different. Very different. And they're both they're both great in their own right. Oh yeah. I thousand percent agree with you. So Josh, you've got a Troy. lot of stuff going on. Why don't you tell us all about it, man? Uh well, uh, like we mentioned earlier, I am watching all of the James Bond movies for the first time with our friend Nathan Simmons, uh, who is a huge Bond fan. And uh, we do that over on the VHS Files you, uh, YouTube channel and podcast feed. So uh, our episode on The Spy Who Loved Me will be coming out soon. As far as VHS Files goes, our Cobra episode will be hitting YouTube oh, so and the exciting. airwaves, uh, hopefully in the next week. Uh, due to our uh, pending any kind of YouTube mumbo jumbo I've got to deal with. And uh, we've got an episode with Mr. Brad coming up pretty soon as well. Uh, we're doing our top four opening scenes in movies and Brad joined us for that one. So you'll, uh, you'll if you, if you like hearing Brad on this show, come check out our show. He'll be on our show talking about his top four favorite opening scenes in movies coming very soon. Let me guess four Quentin Tarantino movies. <laughs> well, there might be one in there. <laughs> I can't wait for that one either. That's awesome. I'm really excited about the Cobra episode. Um, love your oh, love your guys' show. Love if, it. Uh, if you, if you know me, if you know Nathan, if you've ever listened to our show, uh, me and Nathan can can go on a tangent sometimes. Cobra was a blast. So if uh, if you like that movie and you like hearing jokes about <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, definitely tune in for that episode. It's are there it's any a pretty pizza good jokes one. in that movie? Oh, there are some pizza jokes. <laughs> I love pizza jokes; those are my favorite. Um, pizza jokes, gravy jokes, uh, all of the above. <laughs> I can't, I cannot wait. That's awesome. Well, go check out VHS Files podcast, Brad. Who else should they be listening to? Yeah, you should check out the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Watch Get Plus. Uh, Raiders of the Podcast, uh, Mixtape Podcast, and yeah, the VHS Files. Oh, and Night of the Living Podcast. Yes. I think Please there's a couple of other out. ones. The Jacked Up, uh, I can't remember them all. We need to actually put a list and go through. I do it. have a list on the website. I just don't have it pulled up. I put my iPad away. Oh, okay. well, I'll, I'll give a shout out to uh, Silver Linings Playlist and Oh, That's a Scary, scary movie. movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've actually had a couple of emails and people reach out to us from other podcasts, um, that we may be showing up on soon. So more on that, and we may be bringing them on the, the deal is folks, if you reach out to us and you have a podcast and you're like, Hey, come on our show to talk about it. Um, quid pro quo, you have to come on here. So, um, <laughs> we're working those details out. You can't do that in politics, but in podcasting, you're allowed to. Absolutely. And, uh, I can't, uh I can attest, everybody. Troy and Brad are nice guys. I mean, I literally emailed them one day, and here I am. I've been on the show multiple times. Yes, we love having you. Love it. Um, but that, I mean, it's the coolest thing about it, right? You you just get a community going, and um, as as we've talked about many a times, I mean, we we text with Josh on a regular basis, and um, <laughs> we have a lot of fun, and and that's why we do this. It's the community. It's the friends that you you make, and. It's the ability to have a complete stranger start making fun of you for something that, you know, Josh yeah. makes fun of me all yeah. the time. So I love I've it. Never, I've never met <laughs> Troy or Brad in the flesh, but that doesn't stop me from giving them shit. All the time. It's, it's so funny, though. <laughs> so it's totally acceptable. Um, okay, Brad, anything else? We good? I think we're good. Okay. Do the bites. Cool. Uh, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for downloading the episode and listening to our thoughts on The Big Lebowski. Come back next week. We're going to have a really good conversation and bring a couple of friends on to talk about William Freakin's Sorcerer, 
should be super entertaining and super informative. So we'll catch you in a week. Don't lose your head.